Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 28 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. As always, I'm joined by my equal in part co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we made it again a little extra time this time, but we're back. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, I don't even know what the hell I was doing with that time, but somehow I've managed to pass it, and now here we are. So I guess, I guess we're back, and I couldn't be happier. Enjoying life, Matt, as opposed to what it, we do when we do this podcast. Hmm. Sure. <laughs> if 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 you say that I was enjoying life, I'll allow you to say it. But that's okay. that's all I'll say. <laughs> and some another way, I'm going to get the plug get to the plug in record time because another thing that you can enjoy life with is the great podcasts or the great written content at prowrestlingonly.com. Check out prowrestlingonly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. You can also join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only forums. We've been online for over a decade and with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads, our message for it is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive take a deep dive in the microscope forum or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present check out all of this and more at prowrestlingonly.com matt my favorite part about the new pre-written plug i get to do every episode is it uses the word we which makes it sound like you and i have really built this site up like i mean charles and some other people had a little bit to do with it but really we've done most of the heavy lifting here i think you can agree and let's be honest it's mostly been me um, yeah, definitely, you're the workhorse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we don't. It, it you would be, and BJ Whitmer are both the horse. You, you are the <laughs> BJ Whitmer of podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry, I said that. They know. I, you know what? I'll take it. I <laughs> got like the a uh, get get a. You know, I used to be able to do a man bun once upon a time. <laughs> you could still pull it off. <clears throat> you would. Hmm. Uh, I feel like I need to grow my hair a little bit longer yeah. f- for this to be the case at this point. But once upon a time, it was eminently doable. Point being, the internet in general would be nothing without me. Yes, Matt Feuerstein, always a few months away from a man bun. That's the way I think of you. <laughs> but uh, Matt, we this is a kind of a w- interesting period for Ring of Honor. They uh, were, the show we are reviewing today, Empire State Showdown. This was second of I think a three week stretch where Ring of Honor did three shows in three weeks. And in fact, Gabe said he got a li- this was the first time he got a little burnt out during this period. But one of the side one of the side effects of that is because there's such a short gap between the last show and this show, we do not have any Ring of Honor news to get into, so we can go straight to the show. Except I decided. I discovered between the last show and the show a little thing that's not really tied to any specific time. And Matt, I thought I would just, it was so incredible to me. I'm probably building up too much. I was just going to surprise you with it on the show. So this is our little pre-show review bit. I'm so I, excited. <laughs> I've been starting to do research for 2004 and specifically for the Feinstein stuff. And Is this is, to- this this is your life? <laughs> Matt... This is a picture of you with that man bun. And I'm the last person that put the uh, hair scrunchie on to fix it. Do you remember Eduardo? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, I wish I did. So, <laughs> we all rem- wish, rem- uh, having a stroke. Um, no. Too soon. <laughs> I joke. No. Um, 
So I was going through 2004 uh, Pro Wrestling Torches and getting some information, and one of the things that was in the Pro Wrestling Torch in 2004 was a multi-part Torch Talk interview with Gabe Sapolsky. And reading it, I found a what I find to be a pretty amazing quote that's not tied to any particular time, and since I just found it in the last month, and we don't really have anything to cover but this show for once, uh, I thought this would be the perfect episode where we'd have room to fit it in. I'm just going to read you the quote, Matt. I did not warn Matt ahead of time. This might just be a complete whiff, or this might be the most incredible moment in show history. This is Gabe Sapolsky just talking about the philosophy of Ring of Honor in early 2004. This is all Gabe. I've had one philosophy from the beginning of Ring of Honor. We would never get stale. It would never be the same old, same old, and we would always evolve. I wanted Ring of Honor to be to be like a baby, where the baby is just born and has no scars and knows nothing. Then as the baby gets older, it changes a lot and it gets scars and things happen to it. I wanted Ring of Honor to be exactly like that, and pretty much we've accomplished that. I will repeat one more time. I wanted Ring of Honor to be like a baby, where the baby is just born and has no scars and knows nothing. Then as the baby gets older, it changes a lot, and it gets scars, and things happen to <laughs> This man is an actual father now. I was going to say, like, I got concerned reading this quote, like, what was Gabe Sapolsky's upbringing? <laughs> well, I feel like... Son, you know you get... You know these scars, they happen to all babies. Don't, don't tell the teachers about it. Things are happening to you, that's all. Um... Yeah, that, that lived up to the hype, I have to say. And also, so now we know that ROH's philosophy does not just involve copious amounts of violence against women, but also massive child abuse. <laughs> I, I, um, I was like reading that at like a midnight, and I had to like stifle laughter for five minutes. Like just, I could not get over, like I, I could have sworn I read this Torch Talk probably years ago. Yeah. I do not remember that quote. So I want to know if like, I mean, Wade Keller is a very nice, affable seeming guy. So was it, was he imagining this scarred baby as he was giving the talk do you think gabe was imagining the scarred baby when giving the talk now i'm imagining the scarred baby and it makes me feel guilty <laughs> uh it's just I, I just i mean like the the, <laughs> the overriding point you know makes complete sense you know ring of honor was supposed to be this thing that was built to change but <laughs> the idea that his first example of change is you know how a baby gets born and things happen to it and it develops a lot of scars like <laughs> scars aren't good things scars, yeah. you, you don't want your promotion to suffer a lot of emotional or business scars well in early 2004 I mean, they didn't quite have those scars yet, but by, like, mid-2004, man, did they have some scars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gabe got his wish, because if Ring of Honor was a baby, by the time it turned, like, two years old, it was about to fall down a flight of stairs. Can you just do me a favor? Okay. Read that quote one more time. Okay, I'll read the entire quote, including the favorite part. Everybody, one more time, enjoy it. I've had one philosophy from the beginning of Ring of Honor. We would never get stale. It would never be the same old, same old, and we would always evolve. I want Ring of Honor to be like a baby, where the baby is just born and has no scars and knows nothing. Then as the baby gets older, it changes a lot, and it gets scars, and things happen to it. I want Ring of Honor to be exactly like that, and pretty much I feel we've accomplished that. <laughs> I, you know, there's other funny things in that quote, too, when you think about it, but you really, that, that, that baby part tops all of it. 
Yeah, like, and uh, don't get me like the rest of this interview. It was conducted shortly after the initial like discovery of the Feinstein scandal. So, mm-hmm. like, the first half of it is um basically Gabe doing damage control for the Feinstein scandal and talking about that. And then the second half, like Wade kind of just relaxes the interview and just talks about, you know, like what's your wrestling philosophy? How's ring of honor been doing and all that stuff. So this is actually like Gabe kind of, maybe the scars thing makes more sense. Whereas like Gabe was talking about probably like the most horrific part of his professional career. And then he gets to kind of relax, but maybe his subconscious is still like your baby's hurt. Gabe, your baby's hurt. Like, you can't run from this game. Your baby's hurt right now. Maybe it wasn't exactly the time to use an analogy of, a, of an abused child, though. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I'm tugging my collar right now. Hmm. But before the child that was Ring of Honor fell down the stairs, which we will cover in, I don't know, probably six, probably... A few months. Eight, yeah, a few months. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we cover a show where the baby was in pretty good shape, although... This was not a good day for the Baby Ring of Honor in business-wise, because Empire State Showdown took place October 25th, 2003, at the Salmon Creek Country Club in Spencerport, New York, in front of a reported crowd of only 325 fans. This would be, at this point, tied for the third lowest attendance in Ring of Honor history to this point. The two lowest were both 300 fans flat at the... I think Revenge on the Prophecy and Retribution Round Robin Challenge 3, which were both their West Mifflin, uh, Pennsylvania shows. And of course, though that those 300 fans were deemed not good enough to run there again after giving it two attempts, but this would be tied only with a round, the original Round Robin Challenge, which was Ring of Honor's second show ever for like the third lowest attendance. So not great. Uh, and- you know, it's, it's interesting to me though, because like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not in the business of promoting events, but like, I just want to know what they expected. Cause you know, th- that show, like it's not, it's not in a major market. It's not even that close to any super major markets. And there are, it's still an independent promotion in their second year. How much did they, how, like, what could they have reasonably expected to draw? Well, the, one of the interesting things is one thing I've learned from doing this podcast and doing the research is that Ring of Honor really had a keen eye to, they were always looking at, could we expand to tr- markets that, that traditionally did well for ECW? And in fact, I compiled a couple quotes from the observers over months before this, and I got a couple of them here. One was, uh, Dave Meltzer wrote, I know Ring of Honor has been dying to get into Buffalo since it was one of ECW's strongest markets and can also draw from Toronto. And then, in a later issue, Dave updates with, while not official at press time, Ring of Honor are hoping for a late October debut in Rochester, New York, since they've been unable to find a suitable area in Buffalo. And then, of course, they ended up settling for Spencerport. So for those who don't know, I did a little Google map foo. Um, Spencerport's about an hour and 10 minutes from Buffalo, and it's about 14 minutes from Rochester. So, Yes, but Spencerport is basically like, the Rochester metro area. Yeah, so yeah. this was basically their their third choice, and they were hoping, um, they were really hoping to draw from a lot, going to what you were wondering what they expected. I can tell you in a way what they expected, because going to the Wayback Machine and finding the Ring of Honor website from 2003, this is how they hyped Empire State Showdown. This is from the Ring of Honor website. Ring of Honor is like a baby with a lot of scars. No, um, we urge <laughs> everyone in the western New York, Buffalo, Toronto areas to attend the October 25th Rochester area show. If Ring of Honor does well, you can expect to see a lot more of Ring of Honor in western New York. We hope to make it one of our homes. 
In addition to that, this will most likely be Ring of Honor's only appearance in that area until after winter. So don't miss your only chance to see Ring of Honor live in 2003. So obviously they were hoping that, I mean, that first line, we urge everyone in the Western New York, Buffalo, and Toronto area. So they were hoping to get like a lot of pull in. I think Toronto's like two plus hours away from Spencer Port and Buffalo, like I said, is an, over an hour. So they were hoping a lot of people would make the trip. And yeah, I mean, I, Buffalo, I guess, is reasonable. But, you know, Buffalo itself is not such a big market to begin with. And Toronto, I feel like, you know, now you're getting pretty far out because I, I feel like it's got to be more than two hours from Rochester. And because I think that's about how far it is from Buffalo. Maybe I'm wrong. About that. I feel I feel like any time you're asking people, like I don't know what your view is, but for me, I think anytime you're asking people to make more than an hour's drive either way to a location to see a wrestling show, that's when it starts to get a little iffy. Like you just can't. It has to be a bigger bigger show. Like to me, maybe I'm just going by my own thing. But if like a show is an less than an hour away. I look at it much differently than someone saying, well, you know, you're going to drive an hour and a half there, and then after, late at night when the show's over, you're driving another hour and a half alone back home or with your friend. It's like, that's yeah. when I start to go, eh, it has to be a bit better of a show to really hook me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, the, the, you know, when uh, when I was really into going to ROH Live in the, you know, like 2005 to 2007-ish, I would make all the Philadelphia shows that I could, um, and that was about an hour and a half, maybe a little bit even less from where I lived at the time, but... You know, I was, you know, a really, really diehard fan at that point. I can't imagine too many casual fans doing that. So I, and, you know, how many diehard fans are you going to have in that area? Because, again, there's not really that many people there, and it's indie wrestling. And, you know, a lot of those people hadn't really had the chance to see it yet. So they, they didn't, hadn't, they hadn't built that up. I wonder how many of the people in that audience were people that, you know, normally came to shows closer to philly or um nyc like the the jersey shows and like just made the trip north yeah there is and there is one more wrinkle i guess while we're talking about the attendance it, it's not fair to like debate like discuss this without per- complete information because there is one more thing that could have been maybe a pretty big factor um this was the sixth and deciding game of the 2003 world series in baseball and that was between the new york yankees and the floor of the marlins the yankee this was a game in new york and the Yankees lost. Now, I have no idea how much that would affect it. I assume these tickets were on sale for weeks before. I could say if people were deciding, like, I'm going to wait to do a walk-up ticket, you know, I'll decide the day of the show. If all of a sudden you're a big Yankees fan and the Yankees are in Game 6 of the World Series, you're probably staying at home unless you're a huge Ring of Honor fan. Yeah, I would say that's that's and it's probably true. It probably did make some difference. In, in fact, it affected the, enough to the point where I got I got I found some live reports. Apparently, people during intermission were all like on their phones or stuff, trying to find out the score. And that Stephen DeAngelis, ROH's ring announcer at this point, actually between matches when the Yankees had lost the World Series, like actually made an announcement on the house mic to the fans. Like they felt we got to keep the fans updated because probably a lot of them are interested in the World Series right now. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. It's funny because um, I was actually. Uh, I guess it was in my third year of college at that time, and I, I'm sure I was home watching the Yankees game, but I was I was in college upstate at a town called Binghamton, about two, little under three hours from from Spencerport, so, you know, theoretically, 
I could have gone to that show. I mean, it, I, at the time, it wouldn't have even occurred to me, but just interesting to think about. I was upstate at that point, so. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, from the way we're talking, people might be able to guess, but they did not return to Spencerport after this. They, they, no. This was not the start as, as that Ring of Honor article hoped, like a, uh, a part of the first show that would make this a regular home. They saw the 325 and never returned. In fact, they would not run anywhere in New York State in all of 2004. Right. They ended up going back to Buffalo in 2005. So they... And and they they did a bunch of shows in Buffalo over the years. I think do they still run Buffalo? Um, uh, I, I I honestly do not keep great track of Modern Ring of Honor, but yep. I know that I, I know that they make. I mean, obviously, Final Battle Battle they just announced again for the Hammerstein. I think that's been like the last three years. So obviously, they eventually made Hammerstein a home. But for some reason, they yep. had two cracks at New York in two thousand three, and they just for whatever reason couldn't make it stick even though they did well, a good crowd for the Elks Lab. well it's it's important to note that the, the ups like the where they are in this show Spencerport and New York City are completely different markets yeah. like like they're they're like n- nowhere close to each other really like they just would draw completely different audiences beyond the diehards so I don't even find the two comparable like to like those those Elizabeth New Jersey shows like those are New York City shows like it's right outside of New York City like that's the market that they're running in so like they they even though they weren't in New York State in 2004 they were in New York the New York City market in 2004 but the upstate market they they didn't go back to until mid 2005 yeah it's easy for people like me who are like don't have the greatest grasp of uh u.s geography in some ways like i asked you a couple days ago i think like have you ever been to spencerport because i know you're a new yorker and you were like no never been to spencerport so yeah it's definitely it's not like it's a close to new york city for anyone that was thinking that it's right a completely I mean, different part of the state right i imagine that um they ran Jersey instead of New York City um, because they um, because just Jersey's probably cheaper to run than Queens at that point. Um, and they did good crowds there. I mean, the Jeff Hardy one did their record attendance, and even the next show they do, which is the very next show we're going to cover, it, did, it fell, but still did 800 people or something around there, I think, which is still, by Ring of Honor stands at this point, very very good. Yeah, and if you notice, they didn't start running regularly in New York City itself until after the Rexplex, Rexplex closed. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense. The timing makes sense there. Exactly. So um, before we get to what we saw on the DVD, there's a couple other little notes. Um, there was a live report I'll be referencing a few times on this show from a one B. Gordon from PW Insider who was there at the time and sent in a report. And he said that much of the crowd was dead most of the night. Matt, I don't really agree with that, but his live report, he thought the crowd was kind of not really present for most of the show. And I, I think I saw another report that claimed that too. I, um, I found this was a good crowd. Like, I, yeah. I, 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 and actually... I found that just in general, the crowds at this time in ROH were consistently pretty good, I guess, because it was so novel. But yeah, I found like the, the crowd did not, I don't think, hinder any of the matches on the show. And I think it helped a few of them. To me, I felt this felt like a crowd like you'd expect from a 325 crowd, which is, yeah, not a lot of people showed up, but most of the people that showed up knew the product and wanted to be there it felt like it definitely like felt like the they reactions. yeah it definitely felt like they knew the product um, yeah. which is important because that's it affects the reactions yeah this this didn't feel like a show where sometimes you draw like you know a thousand people or whatever but you realize that probably half of those people came for some reason where the result is they've never seen ring of honor before this felt like most of the people there probably like 
really wanted to see Ring of Honor. Right, people time. people who watched the tapes regularly yeah. and and knew all the guys, and you know had some opinion about John Walters, for example. <laughs> so, so you know, like I mean, ROH fans. When Xavier came out, for example, they were, had the AC Slater chant, chant ready, like within seconds. A loud AC Slater chant, like they 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 knew at least the talent. You know, they knew what their role was. You know, how to raz them, things like that. So yeah, um, we there was a sh- mat- a couple of matches that didn't make the show. The first was the very opening match. Did not make the DVD. That is, I mean, it was part of the show. Slick Wagner Brown defeated Hydro, the future Jay Lethal, and. Um, the B, uh, one B Gordon describes it as an okay match. Slick Wagner Brown very sloppy when he was trying to pull off some high spots. He wins with a swing rock bottom from the top rope. After the match, Special K beats down Slick Wagner Brown, which brings out the Carnage Crew, who destroy one of the members of Special K. They then address the fans, saying, "When they plan to give, they plan to give the crowd their money's worth tonight when they take on Izzy and Dixie for the tag title." So that was basically like the opening segment that we. They edited. They did not give us on the home video release. Interesting, because you know Slick Wagner Brown was getting a push for a while, and now he's on the dark match. Um, it does seem like his push is starting to stall, like even in other in other areas, which makes sense because I don't think he's really been that impressive. Yeah, and, and we didn't get to see this match, but the description of it being sloppy, you know, it's in line with it, what we've seen. Y- yeah, I mean, he does some really impressive things, but he also can be sloppy because he feels like a guy, maybe a bit too big to do some of those things, but he's really trying. But yeah, and then we get to finally we start with what we did see watching on DVD. We open with a Samoa Joe backstage promo. Uh, Joe talks about war because that's what the Briscoes declared on him at the last show. Joe says in war, there's only pain and suffering, not glory or honor. I wrote in my notes, what about glory by honor, Joe? Huh? Huh? Uh, he says in war, sometimes that, he says in war, someone that is moral, honored, and respected becomes a heartless, immoral killing machine. And Joe says this with a smile on his face, by the way, which I thought made it kind of creepy in a good way. Joe doesn't think Jay Briscoe has what it takes to be that kind of person. Uh, Joe moves on to Homicide. He reminds us that at Glory by Honor 2, Homicide asked for another shot at Joe. Joe says he's got that shot tonight, but it's not for the title because Homicide didn't earn it, and he doesn't have the number one contender's trophy. But Joe says just to put something on the line, um, tonight's match will be no holds barred. I just thought this was another good standard Samoa Joe promo, that he, like the many he's been knocking out in 2003. Yeah, I think uh, Joe's backstage promos are one of the highlights of the DVDs, usually. It's, it's, it's just solid. You know, he still has some, like, verbal crutches that he goes to too much at this point. He's like, a lot of, like, well, you see, well, you see. Like, he does that a lot. Um, a lot of well, you sees. But... I think his character, like, works. So I think he's just, it's solidly entertaining. And, then you know, that's pretty much all you can really ask for. He, he's really good at both playing, like, the kind of the stately champion and the, like, kind of quietly threatening guy. Like, he, like I think the quote that really sums his promos up so far this year the best is he really carries himself well. Like, he has a confidence to how he presents himself. I think a lot of guys in the indies at this point were missing, probably. I agree with that. And uh, next, we get a completely different way of carrying yourself, because we cut to elsewhere backstage. Colt Cabana tells us that Gary Michael Capetta couldn't be here tonight. So for one show, Colt's putting good times, great memories on hiatus, because he's got the scoops for us instead of Gary Michael. Uh, 
Colt's first scoop is that Joe is going to make his match with Homicide tonight no holds barred, which I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it was pretty funny considering that Joe literally just told us that in a segment like 30 seconds prior. Yeah, I was, was it shown out of order? I don't even know. Yeah, I, I, either someone put this out of order or just didn't communicate to each other or what, but in a bit that genuine, genuinely made me laugh out loud, um, Colt says he's near Homicide's locker room. He then proceeds to take about, like, five steps to in the curtained-off backstage area that he was already in to show that Homicide and Julius Smokes were sitting about five feet away from him the whole time and that there's no room at all. Colt then does, like, a knock-knock on the air between them, miming the door, and then Colt breaks the news to Homicide that Joe made tonight's match no holds barred. Homicide laughs. He's into it. Uh, Smokes does what Julius Smokes always does. At one point, he says that they're going to be in Joe's ass like a G-string on a gerbil. Colt's reply is just to say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I thought, like, <laughs> you, when you can finally make Colt... The great thing about Julius Smokes is he's so crazy, he has the ability to, where, like, he can make people that are normally crazy or wacky in Ring of Honor have to play the straight man. Yeah. Like, he's so wild that even Colt just has to be like, what? I, 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 I mean, I will say it's kind of false advertising when they say that, but hey, you know. <laughs> no one was in an ass. Um, <laughs> and uh, Smokes then, he starts making Smokes sounds and scaring Colt until he runs runs away. I thought this was like a science more rare in wrestling than it should be, uh, like a genuinely funny wrestling skit. Yeah, I think it's, there's always a little bit of magic when Colt and Julius Smokes interact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Smokes is. Uh, we'll get to it in the main event, but Smokes, if if you're willing to kind of play along with him, he's such a fun. He, he would be such a fun personality to to bounce off of. But I could also see like if you don't have, if you're not willing to be the straight man or you're not willing to really kind of stick up for yourself, I could also see him just like overwhelming you and then you just being like, I don't know how to react to this man yeah. in any way, so I'm just gonna freeze. I like when he asks people what's really real. <laughs> what's real? Um. Field of we did uh, this was I guess real. Um, our opening match that we saw on the DVD release was a Field of Honor Block B match. BJ Whitmer defeated Don Dan Moth with Allison Danger by his side via pinfall in nine minutes forty seconds after he hit the wrist clutch exploder, aka Exploder ninety eight. Uh, this was the second BJ Whitmer Dan Moth match we've seen this year in Ring of Honor. Matt, I'm going to ask you what you thought about it, uh, but I am not going to be so cruel as to ask if to ask you to compare the two matches because I don't expect you to have highly like detailed memories of their do or die match a few months later. Well, I can I can compare them a little bit in that this was just like we are going to throw bombs. Like this was like the whole thing was. Like, Moff starts out by just throwing Whitmer into the guardrail over and over and over and over and over again. And he does it enough times that it kind of becomes impactful because it's like, this is a lot. You know, it's like a joke where you, like, you, like, run it into the ground and then you keep doing it and it becomes funny again. Like, it's like he kept throwing him into the guardrail. It's like, all right, enough with the guardrail. And then he does it again. It's like, wow, this is different. So I thought that might have been actually the best part of the match. Um, (laughs) um, Then, you know, after that, it's just like a bunch of big moves. And I kind of think, like... It was a hot, you know, the match had a hot opening, and I thought it was smart to have this match open because, you know, it's a crowd that hasn't seen ROH before, and this is probably not the kind of match they're going to see if they go to a WWE show. And, you know, it's very indie, obviously. Um, you know, just lots of kickouts, buckle bomb, dragon suplexes, 
um, burning hammers, super kicks, rich clutch, rich clutch exploders, like which is what Whitmer hit to get the win. Um, but um, it's that doesn't mean that it was like a great match. Um, it was. Uh, you know, it's kind of probably the best opener style match these two guys could do, and it got the crowd going. It's not my thing, and it was, you know, short and not a lot of psychology, but it might have been the best Field of Honor match so far because, like, <laughs> what's the competition? Um, I, I like that BJ Whitmer Jimmy Rave match okay, but this was certainly not very. Whether you like that match better or this one, I don't think they're very far away. I don't think any of these matches are very far away from each other in quality. Yeah, I That's think the problem. This one stood out, though, because it actually had heat. Um, so I, I think this was the best match, like, uh, honestly, just cause it actually got over, um, maybe not, um, particularly great, but I, I did get over uh, for sure. I, I don't think you can really argue about that. Um, at the very beginning of the match, Whitmer grabbed, uh, Allison Danger by the hair and I was like, yeah. do we count this? And it's like, I mean, we should count it, right? Um, you shouldn't grab women by the hair, yeah. but, I, but, I'm... but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God. Um, I, I, it's weird. Like, I, I guess. Do Do we need to keep track of this anymore? I mean, is the streak's yeah, like, over? Is it? Like, do we start a new streak? Over. I'll say this. I mean, I know for a fact the next show also has man on woman violence. Yeah. So we are right now. If we count the show, twenty seven for twenty eight for twenty eight. Yeah. Um, um. I don't know if we should still keep track of it. If, well, I think if, it's worth no. It's worth noting that it happened, even if we don't keep an official count. Um, there will be more on this show also yeah. of a similar level. I, I should note, I like to mention the top five rankings um, okay. on each show. So on this one, number five is Xavier. Number four is Jay Briscoe. Number three is AJ Styles. Number two is Colt Cabana. And number one spot is vacant because no one, I guess, has the number one contender's trophy, which I've just realized something. The number one contender's trophy. When was the last time there was actually a trophy? I can't even remember. I do think... It- when Brian Danielson wrestles AJ Styles on the next show, that will be for the trophy. I don't know if we'll get to see the trophy. I'm trying to uh, remember the last time I actually saw a physical trophy. Maybe when Whitmer won that four-way at Death Before Dishonor, there was a trophy, but I don't remember for sure. Yeah, it, it, for, it's never in my mind now, even the destination or the trophy. Like, I just... Yeah, yeah. I have a hard time sticking to the the number one contenders thing. I don't. I feel especially now, like I I don't know. Like even Brian Danielson on the next show, he's going to walk into a match for the number one contenders trophy. And I mean, Brian Danielson is you know a big name to Ring of Honor and a great wrestler, but he will walk into a number one contenders match when he hasn't had a match there for most of the year. Yes. And she's like, hey, here, here I am. You know, here's the title shot. Well, uh, we'll get to it on the next show. But um, yeah. G- G- Gabe does address that on commentary. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's one thing I do appreciate. But still, sometimes I'm like, eh. But as for what I thought about the match, I thought this was kind of similar to their do-or-die match, complete with the excessive, or not excessive, like, I, I kind of agree with you, where the more they did, it actually kind of made it better. But just the whipping each other into the guardrails over and over again. And the first time they wrestled at do or die, they had a lot of that because that has the, had the designation of being the first ever ring of honor match. I believe that had the, uh, the sheet metal guardrail signs that made the really nice loud sound. I think something I noticed on the last show and the show is we've reached like a critical mass already of so many matches now have spots where wrestlers whip the other guy into the guardrail. And I don't think it's like a company edict that you have to do it. I just think the wrestlers very quickly realize like, Hey, this makes a really good sound. And 
you don't really have to do, take much of a bump and the crowd loves to hit on these things and but i'm seeing it in a ton of matches now you see guardrail spots Compared to when they didn't have like the the sheet metal sign. Oh yeah, for sure, and uh, it's probably less dangerous than being whipped into a guardrail without a solid thing to run into. So um, yeah, but this but this definitely took it to another level. This match. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, it was just an average match where they try hard. It doesn't go that long. There's not like much any real story to it. Uh, uh, BJ Whitmer has that effect on me a lot, where like. He has a lot of matches where I go, oh, that was all right, but he sure tried hard. Like, you can really see the effort BJ Whitmer puts in, in a good way, even though a lot of times his matches still don't, like, wow me. He always looks like a guy who's really working, like, he, that you're getting your money's worth from him. He's trying hard. Um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really have a character. That's why his matches don't really go to the next level, I think. Yeah, he's just suplex guy that Ring of Honor likes at this point. Yeah. Um... I do think it's good that we we track the man on one violence in the sense of since we made such a big deal of the streak and the streak being over on the last show, it's good to note that like it's very clear that was just like an aberration that last show. It was not Ring of Honor deciding, huh, we should stop this. It was just for some reason it slipped their mind or something. Obviously. As if there as if there was any doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's any doubt, remove it now. Um, at one point, in, I, I thought this was... Usually, I think Doug is perfectly fine. Doug Gentry on commentary. I thought this was a bad night for Doug in a few respects. This is the first time I noticed. After Moff uh, threw Whitmer into a guardrail at one point, Doug says he doesn't even know if BJ Whitmer is alive after that shot. Uh, like, like he really thought that maybe BJ Whitmer would be dead after being whipped into a guardrail. And uh, I just... Yeah, um, no, not uh, you sh- that that that's that's really stretching it. Um, and Moff does. I'll note the the exact same spot he did against Jimmy Rave, where he does the tell the fans to clear out so I can throw my opponent into the crowd. But then once they move, fake them out and throw my opponent back into the ring spot. And that wouldn't be the last time we would see that spot on the show. It's it's one of yeah that's true and it's also that spot for Moff is you know it's one of those deals where this it's a really good spot live because the because le- this live crowd hadn't seen it yet once the yeah. DV, once the the videos get around then it maybe loses its impact a little bit yeah there there are crowd pleasing spots that always work and there are spots where like once you've seen it once you've seen it this is like almost like a joke like once you've heard it they're not even like a great joke like talking about babies with scars where you can hear that line over and over again this is just. <laughs> Yeah, when, once you do it once, it's it's gone. So <laughs> yeah, that um, whole that whole genre of scarred baby jokes <laughs> that everyone loves. Uh, uh, we get a brief Trent Acid promo next that must have been shot on a different show because Trent actually doesn't work the show. Uh, Trent's bummed about losing the tag titles, as you might understand. He says Johnny Cashmere isn't around, so there's no backseat boys for New York. He says he has a plan for the next show in New Jersey, though, and he guarantees they'll win the Scramble Cage match being held there. Spoiler, Matt, they win the Scramble Cage match. Yes, but also, this is the first time we've, as if we're just watching these these uh, videos, first time we've ever heard anything about the Scramble Cage, so it's kind of a weird way to bring it up. It's like, we're going to win that Scramble Cage. And, like, if you're, if you're just following along on the videos, it's like, you're going to what? Who hit the what now? Like, they've never even mentioned it before, and he just says, we're going to win it. That's yeah. weird. That's weird to me. I, I don't know. Like you, you want to announce that it exists before and say what it is before you say you're going to win it. And the last show ended with like a well, didn't the whole show didn't end, but the, near the end of the last show, there was that kind of that 
almost not quite a breakup, but some kind of like strife in the Backseat Boys angle where, you know, Johnny Cashmere won't talk. He just walks away from Trent as Trent calls out to him and he won't respond. And then this show, he's like, oh, Johnny's still not here, but we're going to win that match next show. Yeah, it's like, he won't talk to me, but we're going to win. How do you even know that he's ever going to talk to you again? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. like how did you even hear that he was going to be in the match? Like, the entire fallout from Cashmere walking away is just this promo from Trent Acid. Because on the next show, as we said, they are back together again. Yeah, again, it almost feels like they had a plan to turn, break them up, and then just abandoned it or something, because it's so weird, like, it just starts, and it doesn't, I don't, maybe we'll, on rewatch of these next few shows, we'll see something, but it really feels like they just quickly just changed direction and gave up on whatever that was hinting at. But next, we get a tag team scramble match. The Ring Crew Express defeated Alex Shelley and Jimmy Jacobs. Don Juan and Fast Eddie and the Outcast Killers in 8 minutes, 20 seconds, when Dunn pinned Tortu- Oman Tortuga after he hit what I would basically describe as like a cutthroat driver into a psycho driver, like kind of uh, you hold them in a Death Valley driver position with maybe the arm held, and then you just drop them kind of into a sit-out pile driver. Uh, I thought this was... At first, on this match, as it started, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a typical scramble. But I felt like, by the end, it was not the best scramble I've seen on on this podcast, but better than average in terms of scrambles, because there were just so many crazy double teams. I felt like this had like a higher level of crazy double teams than a lot of scrambles. A lot of scrambles are more about just big spot, roll of the ring, big spot, roll of the ring. But this really felt like a tag team match in the sense that a lot of these guys were trying things together. And I almost felt bad watching it because there was a lot of cool double team spots here that I feel like in a match where you that wasn't a scramble, if you just let them breathe, they would be match highlights. But here there were so many of them, I like forgot most of them. The one that really stands out in my mind was the... Uh, Alex Shelley and Jimmy Jacobs did a doomsday, de- I mean, a demolition decapitation style move where uh, Shelley has the opponent over his knee in like a backbreaker position. And then the other, in a demolition decapitation, your partner comes off the ropes, hits an elbow on the opponent that's on the knee. But instead, Jimmy Jacobs does a back senton, which it looked really cool. They also did a spot where they had basically like a chicken fight where two guys were on two other guys' shoulders, but they were doing like arm arm work while they were like in the chicken fight and yeah i just thought this was um like it's not an amazing match but there was just a lot of cool double teams it was short and i mean that's the point of these uh scramble matches is to be short novel just really fun and exciting and and you know they're not something that's supposed to uh stick around in your head for a long time they're just supposed to be quick fun and i thought that's what this was to me yeah, I um I thought what really put it over the top for me was like you said it was short and also it was just different. It was just differently paced than the other scramble matches. There was no uh, there was no special K, no SAT. They did their own thing. It's actually one of the rare matches, maybe even one of the rare matches in ROH history, where the Ring Crew Express were kind of like the alphas in the match, right? Yeah, like the, they, they were they four were teams, the most over team. Not only the most over team, but they were like the most dominant team. Like they yeah. were, they were, like there were four teams in there, and they are the veterans. You know, like they're the the ones that have probably won the most matches. Which again is at this point now up to what two? Um, but <laughs> well, this is the first time I believe we've ever seen, at least on a main show, Alex Shelley and Jimmy Jacobs even be a tag team. So well, no, they had didn't they have the match against um, Cabana and Steel? Oh yeah, you're right. In, um, 
in it was in was it in Connecticut maybe? What, was it Wrath of the Racket? Maybe? Yeah, I think maybe? so. Yeah, yeah, I think probably the best match on that show probably. <laughs> um, it was I, good though. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't a backhanded yeah. compliment. Um, yeah. Well, at least wasn't intended to be. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the chicken fight was the one that stood out to me, and then the finish, the, the, the whatever the torture act, slam, bomb, whatever it was. Yeah. But I really thought. Yeah, I thought everyone did a good job. It's interesting because the Outcast Killers, you know, if I hadn't done this rewatch, I would not really have remembered anything that they did well. And they're not bad. You know, they're very green, obviously, but they're, they're definitely not bad. These are not, these, you know, even though these are not like deep psychological matches, they're, they can't be easy to pull off. You know, they take skill and they did a pretty good job here. And so I think that they had something. I don't know, you know, I mean, they never really got to realize it but they had potential and obviously like, Shelly and Jacobs are great like they're they're great wrestlers and they already were very good and I guess we should bring up too that Jimmy Jacobs was still doing the Hus gimmick at this point where he had the Hus tights and the furry boots and he would do well Hus he would go Hus Hus and Alex Shelley actually gets his own pair of Hus tights and does the Hus too so he I think at one point maybe they're even called the Hus brothers by commentary or something like that like for for whatever reason for on this night Shelley decided to join in on the act and do and, it as well. And there was even, for the only match in history I can imagine, uh, there was a an exchange between Jimmy Jacobs and the Ring Crew Express where it was like a Huss versus air guitar exchange. Oh, yeah. Where he was like, Huss, and they'd, play the air, they'd do the air guitar, and he'd be like, Huss, and they'd do the air guitar. I, I think that's one thing. If we're talking about like uh, the outcast killers, the thing they're missing is the thing that Ring Crew Express had, which is that very colorful, simple gimmick where even if the Ring Crew Express are barely on a show, like, you're just happy to see them. Like, visually, it's fun to watch them do, like, the air guitar and be goofy and come out to that song. Where the the outcast to kill us, even though they're not terrible wrestlers, they don't have that, like, hook that I think you really need when you are a very low on the totem pole characters and don't really get a lot of exposure. Yeah, they're just mostly, like... In the ring, they don't have characters at all, and then outside the ring, they're basically their 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 characters at their jobbers. Yeah, their characters basically were the were the pre show or ring crew guys that aren't the ring crew express that you guys all like. Right. Like they even had one segment like a few show go, shows ago where they tried to come up with their own rock you like a hurricane style thing where one of them went like we're gonna party like it's your birthday like like the whole joke is just basically we're trying to get to the level of the ring crew express <laughs> which I mean it's it's a, it's it's true that they should want to aspire to that because that would be an upgrade in their standing but yeah. Um, Gabe, uh, did you also note that Gabe said at one point during this match, maybe the Booker should tell them it's just the second match on the show, and they're not supposed to steal the show. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember like, that. Like that winking, I'm the Booker thing. That was a little too cute for me, but it still was kind of funny. Where, and I don't even know if that was Gabe's real philosophy at this point, because Ring of Honor would often people would criticize. Oh, you know, there's too many like big matches up and down the card. They're burning fans out. But Gabe here is actually saying, like, you're not supposed to be on the second match on the show, you know, doing this many crazy spots. But Yeah, and during this era, like, you can clearly say that he delineates how much time he gives the early matches from the late matches. Yeah, but yeah, so fun, fun, uh, fun match. And we move on to a completely different style of match. You couldn't find a more opposite style match in a lot of ways. Christopher Daniels, a score to the ring by Allison Danger, defeated John Walters via pinfall in 19 minutes, five seconds after he hit the last rights. Um, one thing about these matches, um, 
sometimes I like to really read into how long matches got because you can kind of see a booker's intentions. But then I realized that's very dangerous because sometimes guys run long. In fact, I think I was listening to a recent episode of an, an honorable mention, the other Ring of Honor podcast, and they were talking about certain Ring of Honor wrestlers that were notorious for running long. So I don't know if this ran long. It didn't feel like it ran long. It felt like it was worked as long as it was meant to. But if it was like meant to be 19 minutes, that feels like Gabe was really trying to give John Walters a breakout performance. What did you feel about this as a match? And did you feel like this would be kind of a thing that would get people to notice John Walters more getting to go 19 minutes with a, a top guy like Daniels? Um, yes. And I thought that it, it worked. Like I, I thought that it started very slow like the, I just wasn't super into a lot of the stuff like early on. I thought it kind of, you know, it was just very bland early on. But I thought once Daniels took over, I thought that the I thought it got interesting. And I thought the crowd got into it. Like um, Daniels was going after the back. Um, he was uh, his offense. I just thought looked really good. Um, he did a bow and arrow. They were doing fights on the floor, um, and then he does. You know, Daniels does the. Uh, one of a few delayed vertical suplexes on the show. It was interesting to have that be a theme of the night. It was the night of, like, repeated spots that you wouldn't, like, noticeably, like, these guys didn't talk to each other before the match kind of things. Yeah, I don't mind it that much, but I definitely can understand why somebody would. Um, But I guess guess what I would take away from this match was I wasn't super impressed with Walters here, but I thought Daniels put on a great performance. I thought the crowd really was enjoying his stuff. Um, they just like they were reacting to everything. Meanwhile, he he does a cross face, a blue thunder driver, and by the time Walters came back and he hit his lung blower and his spear, the crowd was really into it. And then, like Daniels did this like crazy, like it was almost like I don't even know how to describe it, like a gut wrench backbreaker, where like where Walters almost like landed on like the top of his neck. Like, I don't know if you remember that spot. It was crazy. Yeah, it was like he was doing a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker, but he either he or Walters over-rotated Walters. So instead of coming, like, back, like, horizontal on Daniel's knee, he basically, like, kind of fell off his knee and landed on his head. It looked like like the rare time you would see a Christopher Daniels move that did not maybe go off the way it was intended. Yes, I would agree with that. But it it looked pretty crazy. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't, like... As far as, like, the aesthetics of the match, it didn't hurt the match. Um, then, like, Daniels is, like, a jumping STO. And he actually, this is the first time I ever heard the announcers call the, the best moonsault ever the best moonsault ever. So I guess that's I the official name now. Yeah, yeah, this was the first time I think they didn't call it the double jump. Yeah. And so, and the, so at this point, the crowd is super into it. And, you know, Walters is a, a double jump, like a jumping moonsault powerbomb, not moonsault powerbomb, like sunset flip powerbomb. Uh, his a hurricane DDT for two. And like, so the announcer's whole thing is like they're selling Walters' heart because he's really gotten beaten up by Daniels a lot. And he's coming back. But then Daniels finally gets the Angels' wings, doesn't cover, but then he hits the last rights for three. Um, you know, so I thought I just basically thought the early part of the match was slow, but I thought once Daniels took over, it was very good. Um, that's just my opinion. The the early the thing that stood out in the early part of the match, however, was Danger tripping Walters, Walters yep. grabbing her by the hair, <laughs> um, and then Gabe yelling, "Hit her! Hit her!" 
And Walter sort of teases a punch. And Gabe says, second Gabe quote of the night, I don't like violence against women, but she deserves it for ruining this match. (laughs) And I just put, well, there's Gabe's philosophy. All in a nutshell. I don't, listen, I don't want to cast away Gabe Sapolsky. I'm sure he doesn't think this way now. But this is, seems to be emblematic of the philosophy of the booking of women in 2003 Ring of Honor. It's bad. It's very bad. Um, it's it's, it's very bad. It's showing the culture of wrestling of like that the babyface announcer thinks that's what everyone wants to hear, which is like, yes, a woman deserves to be hit for interfering. Although I For mean, ruining this wrestling match. <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, in a way, that was, I guess, wrestling for decades, you know. They didn't do it as often as Ring of Honor did it, but the idea of, oh, deep down, you know you want this woman to get hers. She grabbed a guy's foot. Like, it's is, is just yeah. not cool. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's just really bad. Um, so, uh, if, if the streak wasn't restarted before it's definitely restarted now um not only in terms of the physicality but of the sentiments expressed on commentary um uh, but as far as the match yeah i i didn't really think walters was that impressive but i thought daniels really stepped it up um i thought this match was good like not even uh, like you know i sometimes a lot of times i feel like i'm a guy with a high ceiling i mean high floor low hard to get to my ceiling but I see a lot of matches are average or above average. This was outright just good. I wouldn't put it like like anything that's super memorable. If I was throwing out stars, like three and a quarter, three and a half, I usually don't do stars. But it's a good way to describe this match, I think. I felt like it was kind of a match where it was worked at a very steady kind of medium tempo, which is kind of sometimes rare in certain shows. But And it never, like, the way I put it is... It never got me like super excited, but it never lost me. Like I was always just like, yeah, I this is this is holding my attention, and it, uh, and I it, I never hit a huge high, but I never hit any kind of low. I didn't. I was never looking at my clock or a watch or anything and going, eh, when's this match going to be over? I, I I probably in that sense liked the start more than you because again, I feel I felt like every minute of this match, I was my attention was held, but I think the story of this match was how over Christopher Daniels was like. I would. I mean, he was over with me because I thought yeah, he was like, great. Rewatching these show these shows, I think Christopher Daniels was always more. I learned that he was. I knew he was over, but he was more over than I remembered. But on this show in particular, like he gets a huge reaction, like a surprisingly loud reaction from these fans, which again supports the theory that these are like hardcore Ring of Honor fans, or they love TNA weekly pay per views at this point because that's where you'd know him. And I mean, just. This crowd loves him to treat him like he's the biggest star on the show. Um, at one point, I think, when he's wrestling Walters, even though Walters is supposed to be the face, they chant, like, fuck him up, Daniels, fuck him up. So, And Daniels is also a guy I noticed in this match. Daniels really loves his dueling body part work matches because this is the third match in, like, the last year of Ring of Honor matches where he's done the I work on one body part, you work over one different body part of mine all through the match. Like, he did that with Doug Williams. He did that, I think, I forget, with someone else recently, and now he's doing it here with John Walters, where um, I think Walters works over a leg, and uh, Daniels works over uh, Walters' back. Yeah, so Daniels loves to do that. um, Let's both do the dueling body part stuff. The, The silliness is fine. It's not super deep. It's a lot of the 
just do a move and cl- touch your injured body part for a second and then keep wrestling. And then at the end of the match, we kind of just don't pay attention to it. But it was a perfectly good, solid wrestling match. I agree with you that Doug, that John Walters didn't do anything wrong. I think what you noticed in this match, apart from that one botch spot that ended up looking brutal, I think that these guys are both very mechanically sound wrestlers, so everything was really smooth in a, in a satisfying way. But one thing also is, you know, sometimes they don't reach that next gear that grabs you emotionally. And it felt like when you watched the match that, like, if this was a match that was meant to uh, make John Walters, like, more of a star and losing, like, a big spotlight match, well, he didn't look like a jobber because Daniels gave him a good amount of offense. It felt like he was just a stand-in that allowed Daniels to do the Christopher Daniels show. Like, by the end of the match, the crowd didn't really seem to have any more respect for John Walters. We could talk about the promo that comes after. <laughs> but it just felt it just felt like John, like Christopher Daniels was so over on this night he just kind of overshadowed overshadowed John Walters. It wasn't like, what a match these two have had. I just was left thinking, that was good, and boy, people love Christopher Daniels. Yep, I would agree with Uh, all that. And uh, just looking at my notes here, I wrote, I should have started a count of the number of times Gabe calls John Walters a blue chipper or can't miss superstar, but at this point in our rewatch, it's too late now. Uh, Gabe also does the little hint where he goes, this is a great example of a pure wrestling match, and he really emphasizes the pure, so Gabe hinting at the future title coming. Um, Yeah, it was cool to see Daniels do the 20-count delayed vertical suplex, and everyone is still ramming everyone into guardrails. Speaking of which, uh, pure wrestling, is this the first match in like months that Matt Stryker has not been on? First show, I mean? Yeah. I think so, and you know what's ironic? We're going to get to a little bit better later. There is a Matt Striker on the show, Matt. You might not know, have known that. I did not know but that. We, we will talk about that a little bit later, but right now, we will go to, after the match, Daniels, actually, it's, it's also weird, like, I think Daniels is technically supposed to be a heel still. Well, then, listen, then we, let's, let's, let's be honest. They have done a shit job <laughs> making, cl- making it clear what Daniels is ever supposed to be. Because in this match, he plays to the crowd a few times, and after the match is over, he's actually slapping fans' hands. Yeah, like, I noticed like, that, like, too. Like, like a typical white meat baby face. He's just playing up. And, I mean, in a way, on this night, like, if you're, just in, if you're not thinking about character, like, clearly that's what the crowd saw him as, is, like, one of the most beloved guys on the show. Um, yeah, this, this, that, this is 100% the booking's fault. Like, we've been following this very closely. They are never clear about what Daniels is supposed to be. Somewhere around the... Uh, the Daniels versus the group feud. I think that was really the point where it was just like, it got so muddled where I was like, I don't know if he's supposed to be turning face or and then, if he's like an anti-hero or what. Like I just lost the thread. I think right when that feud started. And then he was teamed up with Raven, who was clearly the baby face in that feud. Yeah. Like I, and, and then he kind of does the stuff with punk where they teased it a little bit of a feud with punk, which they'll come back to, which again, punk is technically supposed to be a heel right now. So it's like, yeah, it, it, it's just, they're not really even paying attention to it. I have no idea what he's supposed to be, or if they're even giving thought to what he's supposed to be at this point. It's just some more scars on the baby. <laughs> That's going to be our new thing. Like I think every so. Time, I think every so. time there's like a growing pain for Ring of Honor, it's going to be, that's another scar on the baby. <laughs> I am going to be the new slap the porpoise. Um, I am going to stick to it. The, um, I'm going to stick to it. And by the way, no longer are our fans deep vein thrombozos. They are now scarred babies. <laughs> Hashtag scarred babies. Oh, my 
<laughs> oh god, um, that won't ever come to haunt us when some grisly piece of news comes out ever. Um, <laughs> so anyway, after the match, Daniel slaps some fans' hands. He gets back in the ring. He gets on the mic. And he starts a promo. He says, I've been a Ring of Honor since the start. And if I'm going to shake any somebody's hand, it's going to be someone who gave me a fight like Walters did tonight. The crowd gets excited. Walters is like, hey, I'll shake your hand. And then Daniels rejects it like he always does. But he makes it clear it's not that he doesn't respect John Walters. It's because he doesn't do what Ring of Honor tells people to do. Daniels asks Walters what he would say if he gave him a chance to join the prophecy. The crowd chants do it really loud. They get loud. This is probably like the most into they've been into anything John Walters does the whole night is just the idea of him joining the prophecy. Also, possibly ever. Yeah. yeah. Xavier comes down to the ring at this point. He gets on the mic and he asks what Daniels is doing. This is where we get the huge AC Slater chant right away. So again, this crowd you know knows what to chant when they see Xavier. Um, Walters gets on the mic and he says the next time he faces Xavier or Xavier, Xavier, not only is he going to beat him, he's going to quote, wipe his ass all across the building. Not, I'm sure not what he meant to say, but I mean, Hey, I mean, if he, if he has that much in his ass to wipe, I guess he could do it all over the building. Uh, the, the last show, if I remember, it was either the last show or the second last show, we had a John Walters promo where he said the immortal line, you know, piss on me, Xavier, piss on you. So, first piss, now we're getting, I'm going to wipe your ass all across the building. So, uh, yeah, so, so just let's be clear on what's going to happen here. Um, John Walters is going to wipe Xavier's ass. Meanwhile, Homicide and Julia Smokes are going to get in, so Joe's ass, like a G-string and a gerbil. Um, it sounds fun. I don't know. Sounds like. By the way, yeah, sounds like a whole, a whole fun, a whole lot of fun ass play. I don't know. <laughs> oh my! Unless you had um uh, a specially made tiny gerbil G string, I was just realizing. Like, wouldn't a a G string on a gerbil just kind of sit on top of them like a very thin blanket? Like, a gerbil would be swinging swimming in a G string. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, none of my comments are homophobic. I think this just sounds like sounds like a entertain. It sounds like it's a, a, a kind of entertainment that some people would really enjoy. And more power to them. If you want to build a Matt Feuerstein soundboard, you could get a lot of quotes just from this one episode. I think. Um, and please, too, please, I mean, please, I, I please, please don't. Yeah, don't do that. And by the way, I just said wipe his ass all over the across the building and talked about scarred babies twenty times. So I mean. We're going down together. Uh, going down anyway, swinging. Going back to this promo, Walter says the next time he steps into a ring of honor ring, losing is not an option. Um, Xavier attacks Walters and gets into it with Daniels about why he'd even ask Walters to join the prophecy. Daniels says they can build him up into something before Walters attacks Xavier. The camera falls Daniels and Xavier back through the curtain after this, and we see them angry. They're shoving each other. Dan Moff comes in, and he tells Xavier not to touch Daniels again. Xavier says, you must have gotten kicked real hard, which is referencing the legit knockout Moff suffered in the low-key match a few shows ago. Moff has to be held back at this point from attacking Xavier. Daniels tells Xavier they'll talk more when he gets his head straight. And, yeah, the, so the weird, is Xavier a member of the prophecy still or not storyline? I've never been into it. It's still weird they just it's such a thing where like no one even asked the question like hey are you still in this group or not it's like a one question would solve this entire storyline and also it has no ramifications whatsoever yeah and like who, like, who the cares one thing I will, 
The one thing I'll say is this promo did more to get ex- John Walters over than the entire match. Like again, he w- when the reaction he got th- from the crowd when he was considering joining the Prophecy was more than he got for anything in the 19-minute match he had with a top Ring of Honor name. And when I actually sat down and thought about for a second after the match, because that's what I do after these shows, I sit down and I think about John Walters' booking in 2003, uh, I actually thought he should have joined the Prophecy, because it fixes a lot of his negatives. John Walters is a good kind of fundamentals wrestler who doesn't have a lot of charisma and he doesn't have great, to say the least, he does not have great mic skills at this point in his career. And if he joined the prophecy that like solves those deficiencies, I like would, he should, they, they, they should have put him in the prophecy. I would agree with that. They went with Whitmer instead. Um, maybe Walters would have been the better choice. Um, and, and I don't know if every crowd would have been like Spencer Port, but on this night, like they would have popped big if he like joined them and attacked Xavier or something, and they did a double turn. Ah, uh, yeah, I agree, man. Hindsight twenty twenty, who knows what would have been. Also, also, uh, Walters got most of his success later in his career as a heel. Yeah, and and again, even here, it's classic booking of Daniels can cut most of the promos for him, and even if he doesn't always have great personality in the ring, you can have Alice in Danger, you know, do stuff at ringside and be involved in more objectionable moments that at least give him, like, a bit more color. Like, again, it's the classic reason why you pair a guy in a stable or put him in with a manager is because if, if you like a guy in the ring but they don't have, like, the personality – you can just get other people to be the personality for you. Like, this would have worked out, I think, pretty well. Yeah, by the time that he, Walters, eventually joins the embassy, I feel like it's it's too late. Like he's, Yeah, because he's already had that failed run as the pure champion and as, right. as like, that white meat, just straight ahead, losing his non-option, I'm way too serious without charisma, baby face. Man, though, they were pushing him hard here. Like, we thought they were pushing Matt Stryker hard for a while, but this is like, even though he's not winning matches, they are really featuring Walters a lot on these, like, few shows. Like, Gabe really likes him a lot. And, And the crazy thing is, like, they keep, he keeps saying over and over again, you know, he's a blue chipper, he's a can't miss, and I know that's in part because... Gabe always has like his same one or two bullet points he gives each wrestler and he just repeats them every show. Probably maybe because he thinks like every show might be someone's first. Like, for example, if you watch a special K match, he's always like, these are these kids are living off their parents' money and they could be good if they took it seriously. Like, it's always the same line. But the problem is his line for Walters from the very start is always he's a blue chipper, can't miss guy. And he's lost a bunch of matches and he hasn't really had, like, a breakout great match yet. But yet, like, right from his maybe his second match in the company, Gabe instantly decided that was going to be John Walter's bullet point. That he's, like, the blue chipper, can't miss superstar of the future. Yeah. I mean, as we've discussed, didn't work out that way. <laughs> no. Um, next, we cut to a poorly mic'd Steve Carino backstage in some kind of office. Carino is mad at Christopher Daniels for calling him a snake on a recent Ring of Honor release. Steve says that the worst thing you could call someone other than a check bouncer or fraud or promoter. That's the worst thing you could call somebody. Carino brings up his past with Daniels, which he's brought before. That the Five years prior to this, they were in the WWE dojo together trying to make it. He says it's lucky that they didn't make it, so Carino obviously happy with his career at this point. Um... Steve says he he really meant it when he when he said he hoped Daniels would beat Samoa Joe for the title at Glory by Honor 2. Daniels didn't believe him. He puts over Daniels and how he elevated his sister Allison Danger into the top woman in Ring of Honor. 
He says their friendship has fallen apart in the last year, and he needs his and he needs this friendship badly. He denies stooging Daniels to CM Punk. Uh, this is referencing uh, a show recently where Punk said, you know, Carino told me Christopher Daniels admitted that he, you know he was the one that attacked Lucy and stuff, and Daniels said that's not true. Uh, Carino says Punk reminds him of a young 23-year-old Steve Carino, a guy who disrespected veterans. Steve says Punk disrespected the wrong veteran. He's mad that Punk put him in a match with Raven at Death Before Dishonor, where they did the uh, Raven and Punk pick each other's opponents night. He's mad that Punk got involved in that match, interfered. Carino says he's going to teach Punk respect tonight. And then he also says, I'm not done with Homicide. Says Homicide took the hearing away from one of his ears, shows off the barbed wire scar on his arm. He reminds us he was never pinned or submitted by Homicide in that match. His friend Guillotine Legrand threw in the towel. Steve says he'll always be better than Homicide, always be better than the fans, and he's here to irritate and stir trouble. He says he loves it. Just ask his ex-wife, ex-girlfriends, and bosses. Creole says if he has to beat Fathead Samoa Joe for the title, he will. And I wrote, he's irritating, all right. Like, this was, there were parts of this is good, but Creole's one of those guys, like a few guys on these Ring of Honor shows, they're a good promo who thinks they're a great promo, and they go on and on and on. But maybe with Creole, that's part of the point. I don't know. Maybe it's because he is supposed to be the irritating heel. Yeah, I, I, this is part of a trend. I definitely like the Carino stuff more than you do. Um, I know you also don't like how, like, kind of insider he can get sometimes. Yeah, I, I feel like this show, when it comes to the insider stuff, he did a bit better of, like, straddling the line in the right way. Like, sometimes I feel like he leans too far in where he's just like, you smart marks don't like me because I work Japan sometimes and I've missed shows or all, or you're on your message boards typing your words on your keyboards. Like, that's the stuff that bugs me a bit, yeah. Yeah, I I just, I think his delivery is good. I think he's a unique character. Um, yeah, it did go on a little too long. Also, it was very poorly filmed. Like, it was filmed like like VHS instead of DV, maybe. I don't know. But um, the, the quality of this promo, like video quality, was bad. And the sound quality, again, I noticed immediately the sound quality was like a step down from everything else yeah, on the show. It's weird when that happens, but I guess it is an indie. Um, but I, I like his shtick. I, I just, I, I think the irritating thing, like it works for him. Like clearly it's on purpose or it's something that he knows about himself and leans into. Um, you know, well, there's, there'll be a lot more of Carino to talk yeah. about later. I will say it begins to bring up an issue that I will talk more about after we finish reviewing the show, which is the focus or lack thereof of some of the feuds at this point. But, yeah. But I'll get to that later. I guess the last thing I'll bring up, which I think I will also bring up more during the punk match later tonight is, uh, one thing I really do like about the Steve Carino character here is he's not like the most evil sinister. I'm going to kill you or kidnap you or, or I'm going to take over the world style, like mustache twitching, twisting heel. He's just like the classic, like, He's not evil. He's just an asshole. You know, yep. like, he's just a jerk. And I like that kind of heel. I think there should be more of those. I agree. He, he, he's not trying to end your career. He's just a jerk. And uh, that brings us to the Ring of Honor tag team title match. Special K of Dixie and Izzy successfully defend the titles. They defeat the Carnage crew in 15 minutes flat when Izzy pins Loke after he does a flipping powerbomb off the ropes. Uh... For what I thought about this match was, this was similar to another recent Special K match. I wonder, I think I liked that one less than you too. It was a Special K Backseats Boy match where I felt like they wrestled it more of a traditional tag style and I didn't like it. 
I felt like this match was very middle of the road at best. It, it's a very if you if you like like very traditional structured tag matches, and I do. There is like a classic structure to this match in the sense that I don't think Special K get an offensive move in in the first five minutes of this match. It, it's it's the Cars crew just destroy them for the first five minutes. They cheat to get to the event the advantage. From there, they make Loke the face in peril. There's a hot tag, and then there's a big finish. Like it's a classic structure. If you if you're a person that goes, oh, indie wrestling, you know, doesn't have enough psychology and structure. This is like the most classic Southern basic tag match you'll ever see. My problem is Special K. I feel like when they're in control, their offense is a little too basic, and I and they've been portrayed as such losers for so long. Even though I I've felt like they've been under pushed i feel like i can't buy them now when they're in control like especially now when they start to incorporate the the straps where a lot of times they interview with straps i uh i don't buy them as the people that would use straps i don't know that seems like a southern wrestling like 280 pound cowboy hoss with straps on i don't buy special k would be strapping guys with belts i know that's setting up a match in the future uh, a country whipping match i think but and the only other thing that really, again, I thought this was like a basic average match. The only other thing that irked me about this was this was a match, like a lot of recent Special K matches, where the interference is super obvious to the point where it makes the ref and the announcers look horrible because they have to try and believe, especially the refs, have to try and believe, like act like they don't see it. And then eventually they just can't and they see it and then they, they just ignore it. Like there's a moment here where um, Angel Dust springboards in with a blockbuster. And, like, the ref can't hide that he's fucking saw this move. But it just, they have to ignore it because that's not the end of the match. And that stuff is kind of getting a little bit irksome to me. Yes, I agree. Um, okay, so this match. Um, I appreciated that it was chaotic and different. You know, I, I noted, like, it's weird that, you know, up until now, the most, you know, most of the tag title matches we think of in ROH is AJ and Red versus the Briscoes. And now, not too much later, it's Special K against the Carnage crew. Um, <laughs> but I just thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was too messy, um, too long. So I did not like it as much as the Backseat Boys match. I just thought it was just too much, too much crap going on. And it didn't, it didn't all work for me. Um, I appreciated the formula. You know, some of the interference was entertaining. Um, you know, like, I liked, I liked Angel Dust giant Mickey Mouse gloves. Um, but, and, <laughs> but, you know, and like lots of guys bleeding and stuff. And, I, you know, Izzy, I think, is always good. You know, I liked his uh, flashy uh, double moonsault dropkick that he does. Um, but, I don't know, it just, it just, I don't know, there just, it just didn't really work for me. It just, there was just too much crap going on. And it just got, it got tiring after a while. Uh, the, the one thing that I noted afterward was the crowd chanting, you still kicked ass at the Carnage crew, <laughs> which I don't know if I've ever heard before. I don't either. Honestly, that's the only time. I thought that was novel, too. Um, I guess a couple other notes we should mention about the match. There was triple blood, I counted. Lit gets cut early, I don't know from what, and Dixie and Izzy both blade. In the Observer report that someone sent in this match, Dave wrote, it was said there were six people running around ringside bleeding, which made the match mean nothing. There were not six people running around the ring bleeding. There was two people involved in the match and one guy at ringside bleeding. 
So I don't know where Dave got, there was six people bleeding around ringside. But no, not all of Special K bled simultaneously during this match. Um, and there, again, there was a lot of interference, including it directly led into the finish. I don't think I mentioned that, where uh, um, the end of the match, the Cards crew go for the spike pile driver off the second rope. The ref's distracted yet again. Hijinx whips the Cards crew with a belt, and then he chokes DeVito with it, and then Izzy hits the springboard flipping powerbomb to get the win. Um, Becky Bayless also dis- distracted the ref in this match. There was sh- all sorts of interference. There was one cool spot where Angel Dust, uh, or, um, no, Dixie took a belly-to-belly suplex from DeVito into the buckles, and he hooked his legs, so he landed in a tree of low in the corner. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Doug, pull- another Doug bad commentary moment tonight. Doug pulls a Gabe. And he says, there's no way the Carnage crew could lose this match tonight, Matt. There's no way. <laughs> like, they, they can't lose this match. So you know they're not going to lose this match. Um, but apart from that, yeah, just... For some reason, I thought these teams would work better together. After, and they haven't really caught, like, gelled in the first couple matches they've had. After the match, we get an extended shot of the crew selling outside the ring. And... I note here, it felt like they really had extra time on the show. I think the DVD ended a few minutes early. It felt like between this and the scramble match, they really lingered on guys after the match a lot longer than they would on a lot of other releases. Uh, Loke kicks a guardrail sign out of frustration, leading to the fan that was standing directly behind it to yell very loudly and clearly, Oh, my balls! (laughs) Uh, His his friend asks him if he's okay, and he says, I almost dumped my drawers. And you can see one of the country guys just, like, gawk at him, like, what the fuck? (laughs) And then the crowd chants, you still kicked ass. And, yeah, that's that. It's intermission, and Colt Cabana's backstage, continuing to fill in for Gary Michael Capetta. He brings in a man he calls Daniel Moth. And Mr. Moff makes it very clear he does not like being called Daniel. So note for anyone that attends the show Dan Moff works at, do not call him Daniel. Uh, Colt mocks Moff for losing to B.J. Whitmer tonight when Colt already beat him in the Field of Honor. Colt then accuses the prophecy of being involved with Lucy's disappearance. Moff says he doesn't care who took out Lucy, but the prophecy had nothing to do with it. When Colt presses him on this, Moff does something that will come into play a few shows later. Very big point for this storyline. Dan Moff swears on his really recently departed father's grave that the prophecy had nothing to do with it. Colt says he's going to whoop Moff's butt. Moff turns into screamy, super shouty Moff and says he's going to kick Colt's ass and that, quote, this comedy shit ain't over with me, unquote. Moff leaves and Colt wipes a lot of Dan Moff's spit off his face saying he wanted the news and not the weather. I liked Colt like playing at the same time tough and scared. I think yeah. he, he does a good job with that. I was thinking, Daniel Moff would be his York Foundation name. Oh, that would be perfect. Which also... I yeah, I was going to say... Sorry, go ahead. No, I just say, I want a time machine for that moment. I want that to happen. Well, I am stunned, actually, that an indie has not paid Terry... Uh, Terry, uh, I don't know what her last name is now, but um, Terry, uh, yeah, Terry Runnels, Bo- Boatwright, whatever, paid her to come <laughs> back to their indie as Alexandra York, at least for like a one-off, like Joey Janela or something, to have like a York Foundation where like I, I don't know, like Matthew and Nicholas Jackson or something. I don't know, <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I Kenneth Omega, man, William Osprey the yeah. second. Yeah, they like just like this. So Zach Saber, Zachary Saber the second. Yeah, ooh, that's 
See? Man, we're, all, we're putting all the top guys in the York Foundation, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, they got the money, Matt, and that computer that predicts everything. Yeah, she should have, like, the same, the same computer from 1991. <laughs> I feel like that she has, would be like, good. a Macintosh, like she's playing uh, Oregon Trail on it. Somebody tell Joey Janela that he has to make this happen. Yeah, honestly, like, I would say compared to other things we said, there might be like a 1% chance that we cause this to happen. I feel like, like yeah, I would say a 1% chance. I think that's fair. Yeah. Let's do like it. We, enough people in the know with connections listen to us that there's like a minute chance that we now cause this to happen, which if you know what? Free. Free of charge. This one's for free, folks. This one's on us. Yeah, yeah. This scar on the baby ain't going to cost you anything. Fine, I'll take. I'll do it for free. Um, <laughs> but no, yes, please. This would this would make my heart sing. <laughs> Wild thing. <laughs> um, so at this point, Matt, then we got something I didn't know before I researched for the show, and judging from your reaction earlier, you didn't know either. There was a Matt Striker on this show. It is the famed other Matt Striker, the one that became a horrible commentator, not the one with the unibrow, Matt Striker with an I, not a Y, because local wrestler Jared Steele beat Matt Striker, who was working at Matt Lash- as Matt Lachey, and uh, Mike Johnson wrote as, in a response to a live report, Lachey was yet another identity added to the resume of Stryker from New York City, who works USA Pro regularly. It was a takeoff, I believe, on Nick Lachey of 98 Degrees, who is married to Jessica Simpson. Oh, um, you know, he does He does have a little bit when younger Matt Stryker, I could see looking kind of like Nick Lachey, actually. So not only did I not know that he worked the, this Ring of Honor show, I did not know he ever did that gimmick. And in fact, Cage Match does not have that listed as one of his like alter egos. But according to this live report... He worked as Matt Lachey. Maybe just that one and only time. Yeah. Um, the live report from B. Gordon says this was about two minutes long. He writes, local guys, I guess. The <laughs> match was really short, but it seemed like it was a screw-up by the referee who counted three, then wasn't sure, then had the bell rung anyway. So not the greatest, I guess, ex- ch- exposure for these two guys. Yeah, Matt Stryker would be back, though, at one point. Yeah. Um, now we come to our first match we get to see after intermission, and that'd be Field of Honor Block A action. Xavier takes on and defeats Chris Sabin via submission in 11 minutes, 40 seconds with the Muta Lock for the submission. Uh, Sabin now is out of the term. He goes 0-2, and he and Jimmy Rafe, they did this weird thing in the round robin where... Even though it was a round robin where each block everyone should wrestle three matches, because Rave and uh, Sabin both started 0-2, they just immediately, like said, you guys don't have to wrestle the last match against each other. I don't think there's ever a Chris Sabin versus Jimmy Rave match from this tournament. Um, Matt, what did you think? Did, did this buck the trend of middle-of-the-road Field of Honor matches? Well, first of all, wasn't, weren't Chris Sabin and Jimmy Rave like in different blocks? Um, Cause was oh, it- yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Oh, so who did he not, did he not wrestle somebody or, no, I, I guess each block just had one guy that didn't finish their block maybe or something. Yeah, cause, because cause, cause this, this block was Walter, Sabin, Xavier, and Stryker, right? Yeah, so he, there's some match he didn't have, I don't, I, I think. What a charismatic, but, what a charismatic block. Yeah, like you can tell how good this tournament is by how keenly I remember every <laughs> detail of it. It is funny, though, that the block with Jimmy Rave in 2003, you know, Jimmy Rave is great now, but the Jimmy Rave 2003 block was the charismatic block of the two. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, th- um, this was just kind of a match, I thought. I actually thought Xavier was pretty good. Like, he gets a lot of heat from the crowd. Um, 
And Gabe uh, teases Doug with a final battle announcement, and Doug is like, ooh, what's, what could it be? Um, <laughs> that's the big thing I remember from this match. But in general, like, Xavier does this crazy surfboard s- stretch that got a really good reaction where he, like, he has him in a surfboard, then he, like, you know, kind of sits up with it and pulls, uh, he pulls Saban's, like, head back, something that Brian Danielson would do sometimes. And, like, the crowd really liked that. And and Saban kind of came out of it and hit a basement dropkick. Um and then they they just kind of do basic stuff. Um, I thought the crowd liked this match more than I did. Um, like they were kind of into it. I thought Xavier looked pretty good, but I uh, I'm not feeling 2003 Saban. Um, Xavier, by the way, won with like a, a a cobra cut sloop suplex and like a neck submission thing. Like I don't know how you would describe it. Like he pulled back on the neck, almost like I guess what would you say, like a like the guys a, got, call it the Muda Lock. I don't yeah. know. It if wasn't that's really the official though. name. The Muda Lock is like where you have the um, where you like bend back in a leg grapevine and pull up the guy's head. Yeah. So, so that's not really. I guess it was a Muda Lock kind of without the leg thing. Um, I'll admit this is definitely one of those matches where I didn't know what to call the finish, so I looked up other people's reviews after I watched this to be like, I'll just use what you call it. I, I won't take the blame on this one. It was a next submission of some kind yeah. that got the tap out. I thought Xavier looked pretty good. I, For whatever reason, like I love Chris Saban. Like, I think he's like been great everywhere, but all of his 2003 ROH stuff has been kind of boring to me. I, mean, I thought this was no exception. I thought this was a super middle-of-the-road match. I think this is kind of... this. There's a lot of things about 15-year-old Ring of Honor I think modern wrestling is missing, although I do like many elements of modern wrestling. I feel like one thing it, it, that it's, modern wrestling has really progressed at is these kind of matches. Like This match is just about action, 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 and nothing else, and doing cool stuff. And the bar for that constantly gets so much set further and further, but I feel like these kind of matches are the matches that age the worst. Like, there's nothing to it but just cool stuff, doing action at a good pace and cool stuff, and matches are just way more, fa- way faster, the moves are cooler at this point, and there's nothing else to, to like, sink your teeth into on this match, so it just ends up being very mediocre, very, very mediocre at best. Um, the crowd, like you said, though, again, I th- this is why I, partly why I think it aged ages poorly is maybe for the time this was really better than what we see it now as that could the be. really did like you said liked it and also i really do think xavier is much better now than he was when he was champion even though like he some of those title matches got over like i think xavier is actually having a strong comeback here like pretty i mean like in terms of in the ring he's much better than he was in 2002 there were a few performances in 2002 I didn't like. I haven't seen one since he came back that I thought was, like, bad. Like, they've yeah. all been at least fine to good. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that I'm watching an Xavier versus Chris Saban match and thinking Xavier is clearly the better <laughs> performer of the two. But he was here. I mean, would you agree with that? I do, and there's something to be said, like, I don't think Xavier ever would have been, like, a top major player for Ring of Honor. But there is something to be said for they might have really hurt him with the way they pushed him in 2002 in the sense of they pushed him as a complete mid-carder and then made him world champion with, I guess, the idea that, one, the title would elevate him, even though the title barely existed at that point, and two, I guess, the idea that it would be a huge surprise, which it was. But it's like, after that match, they still treated him as a mid-carder. He rarely main-evented. He feuded with Jay Briscoe, who was, like, 
18 at that point and just a uh, mid-card guy. He, again, rarely got the main event. I think I looked it up. I might be wrong about this. I think after, from the time, after um, Xavier won the world title, which wasn't in a main event, that was a middle of glory by honor one, he main evented, I think, two shows. And those shows were Revenge on the Prophecy, where he lost in a tag match. And then he main evented uh, Expect the Unexpected, where he lost as part of the tag team champions. And then he lost, oh yeah, the main event of um, Night, of the Cha- Night of Champions, where he lost the title. And every other show, he did not main event. So, I feel like they basically made him a world champion, but booked him as a mid carter and the crowd rejected it. And now it's kind of like, even though he's back to being a mid carter now and he's doing a fine job as a mid carter, I feel like it's too little too late. Now uh, he has that stink of, Oh, you're the failure. I would agree with that. It's definitely like if he came out like this at the beginning of ROH, things could have been pretty different for him. I think. It, yeah. Um, there was one really bad spot in this match. Well, not super bad, but uh, Xavier does a skin the cat spot where he's hanging on the ropes and he has to like pull himself back over. And he does it very slow. And like halfway through when he's upside down, he kind of hesitates. And Chris Saban is clearly waiting for him to f- get to a certain point in the skin the cat so he can do a move to him. And Chris Saban literally like waves his hands to Xavier like, keep going. <laughs> and then he and then, and then Xavier does and he does the move like it's just a really awkward looking spot. The crowd also chanted chanted Dustin Diamond during this match, which I assume is just because they got tired of chanting AC Slater. <laughs> they want to make a different Save by the Bell reference. Um, they should have they should have started a lark 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 chant. <laughs> turtle, feel, turtle, turtle. I feel like that turtle. just that just would have had a ring to it. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, the one last thing I know. Oh, is- if you wanted to say by the bell chant, I think we know the one to do. Beep, 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 beep. Go Bayside, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> One day wrestling fan, I, I bet you a PWG crowd has already chanted that at some point. You know they have. This is so cliche, but what if they just chant, I'm so excited, I'm so, <laughs> and then they said, I'm so scared, and then yeah. that would be good. Um. But the one last thing I noticed about this match was this was a really rare thing Gabe did on commentary, which he almost never does. It was, it was really out of character for him. Gabe at one point during the match says, it would be really disappointing if Saban went 0-2 and two here in the tournament. And usually Gabe is always a guy who's trying to find the silver lining for every wrestler and get hyping them even in defeat. So if I was watching this match live, I'd be like, well, Saban's definitely winning this match. He loses clean by submission to the heel. Like, it's, it's, it's a weird thing where it actually made Saban look like kind of an idiot. Yeah. Because you, you had the face play-by-play guy going, it'd be really disappointing if he lost this match, and then he just loses it. And Saban, if I'm correct, is not in ROH for much longer here. Yeah, so maybe, maybe they knew at this point that he wasn't going to be long for the Ring of Honor world. I don't know. I haven't checked the lineups for the, like the, the New England shows um, that come after Main Event Spectacles. But he's definitely not on main event spectacles, and I, he's not on final battle either. So this might be it for him. I'm not sure. One thing I've noticed is Gabe usually is pretty quick about giving guys, new guys, in, when they come in, either a gimmick or usually mostly some kind of angle. Like if you look, John Walters almost immediately has this Xavier angle. Jimmy Rave has the weird, even in losing the AJ Styles as his mentor, and he keeps ignoring his advice angle. Uh, Teddy Hart, even on the first show he did, got involved with Special K in a couple segments. 
Chris Saban, he's Gabe's never really giving Saban anything. Like that, he kind of stands out in that respect. Like I can't think of an angle or a character. The most I remember Chris Saban is that Wrath of the Racket backstage segment where Ace Steel and Colt Cabana went up to him and Colt asked uh, Chris, like, if you're the future, how many chicks am I going to bang tonight? Like, that's all I remember Chris Saban in, in terms of, like, storyline. Yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. And then he does, yeah, and he does, like, one funny line about, like, yeah, how many chicks am I going to bang? He's, like, zero. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's about it for Saban. I, um, yeah. it's... I guess they just never fully got behind him, and he apparently never fully got into it, because I know that his performances could be better than what he showed in ROH, because obviously yeah. we saw it at the same time in TNA. I think, yeah. I think what I noticed about Saban is he's trying to do this like kind of slower, pure wrestling thing, and maybe that's just was not what suited him at the time, because in TNA he was definitely much more of the high flyer, you know? Yeah, and he, they even gave him, like, the 10-minute AJ Styles match at WrestleRave. Like, that's a good opportunity. And if I remember correctly, our, our impression of that match was basically, like, it's good, but it's not anything special. Like, and you would think AJ Styles is an opponent he's probably familiar with. He's super talented. It was, I think, the semi-main event. Like, that's a pretty good spot. It just, he, just, and, he, just, he just was not a good fit, and I yeah. guess they all figured it out. Luckily, he did fine anyway. <laughs> but now we get... To a real, the maybe the most memorable part of the show, the thing that's most remembered, which is CM Punk versus Steve Carino go to a twenty-minute time limit draw. But really, what people remember is not the match; it's what happens before the match. Before the match, we get ring introductions. Steve Carino takes the mic from ring announcer Stephen DeAngelis and gives it to his personal announcer Bobby Cruz yet again. Bobby starts his introduction saying that wrestling is a sport for the manliest of men, men who abuse other men. Men who abused the occasional woman, and I noted when he said that, a couple fans in the crowd started clapping, and I just wrote, holy shit. It's, um, it's 2003 ROH. I guess yeah. we, by now we know what, what we're getting into. Yeah, um, and then it's also for men who abuse drugs and alcohol. Cruz starts lifting off a ton of wrestlers, presumably drug users. If you listen to the An Honorable Mention podcast, they went through every single name. I will not do that. I jotted down some highlights. It is a lot Bruiser, of names. <laughs> it, it is a ton. Bruiser Brody gets a big pop. Sean Waltman gets like the X-Pac boo reaction he would get during this era a lot. Jeff Hardy Jeff, gets booed. <laughs> yeah. Crowd chants when they bring up Brian Pillman. Shinjiro Otani gets a pretty big pop. Mari Gennetti gets a surprisingly big pop. Jake, the snake, Duggan, Jake the snake chant. Yeah, Jim Duggan gets ho. Um, Cruz Dunn does his usual break to drink water gimmick, but then he also opens up a flask of liquor this time, which pisses CM Punk off. Crew hands the flask to Crino, who takes a drink as well and makes like a sour face. Bobby offers it to Punk, who isn't having it. This pisses him off, and he tells Crino to show some fucking respect. <laughs> Then Cruz gets back on the mic. Junkyard Dog gets some woofs. Scott Hall gets a predictably good reaction. Cruz does Raven, Sky the Body, and Johnny Polo all back to back to back, which was cute. Jake Roberts, big pop, like you said. Uh, Cruz follows that up by ending with, and all the Von Erics. That's the big final one. Uh, I took, I tracked this Creole's entire entrance from once he got in the ring to when Cruz ended was eight minutes almost. So eight minutes of speech reading. And after it ends, you think, okay, that's the usual Steve Carino big entrance that we've seen of late. But then there's a bit of a CM Punk chant, and Punk unfolds a sheet of paper, calls Steven DeAngelis into the ring, and gives him his own list. 
D'Angelo reads a partial list of drugs that CM Punk has never done and never will do. There's a pop as the crowd realizes what's about to happen. <laughs> Punk's list includes all the street drug favorites, as well as various antidepressants and other drugs. It's literally, it's literally, as far as I can tell, any drug you could have possibly have heard of in 2003. Yeah, I mean, he moves on even to orthotricycline, which for those who don't know is the birth control pill. Um, he just starts using, saying drugs that you can tell he just picked them because they have funny names. They also list Claritin, Flonase, three different nitrates. PCP, GHB, LSD, STP, HDH, HDG, THC, PMA, and MDA. MDMA. Now he yeah. says he says THC, even though he has already started with marijuana. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. Um, DeAngelis does the break for water gimmick, and then he continues. They name off Viagra. DeAngelis starts to have trouble with some of the names and starts laughing during them, like he can't keep his composure the way Bobby can. Uh, DeAngelis ends by saying, this is a partial list, and it goes on and on, but then Punk reveals there's more on another page, and it continues. <laughs> the one DeAngelis finally ends on is NyQuil. That's his version of the Von Erics, I guess. Um, Punk's list took about five or six minutes. All told, the ring introductions took about 13 minutes, just for the ring introductions. And can I mention the thing that I noticed? Yes, please. This I did. I missed this when I was watching. It didn't pop in my head, and it blew my mind when you told me. So it said, "This is a list of drugs, partial list of drugs that CM Punk has not or will never take." One of the drugs he lists is the antibiotic known as Zithromax, which, if you don't know, is uh, the drug name is azithromycin, which is also commonly referred to when you get a prescription of it, a Z pack, which is what. CM Punk famously claims he was prescribed multiple times by an unnamed doctor um, to little effect, which uh, led to, which is one of the reasons why he got fed up with working for WWE. So clearly he has taken that particular drug. Punk is a filthy liar. No. No, <laughs> it was a. Uh, but it's yeah. but it is funny though because that that is like a key point in one of his one of the most famous stories about him. I think we talked uh, off the air about how it is kind of funny, like how cartoonish Punk's anti drug thing was. Like there, there's a way you can do it where it's very serious and it's obvious with this list. Like he was kind of revving it up where it was like he was just saying things that he's probably taken. Like I'm sure. CM Punk's probably taken anti-allergy drugs or things like that. You know, like he's just doing, it's almost becoming rather than this, this is a, my life. This is real. It's becoming just, let's make this ridiculous just to like get a reaction. Right. Right. And even like bragging about not doing antidepressants and things like that. And I, I know it to you, you know, CM Punk went on to marry a woman who is a noted mental health advocate. I bet you today, if he did this promo, he wouldn't be talking about like bragging that he's never done an antidepressant. Right. Also, he is a he's a straight edge. He's not a Christian scientist. So he's probably taken antibiotics other than that also, because sometimes yeah, you have I'm infections. Sure he's had caffeine. I'm sure he's had a Pepsi, you know. Yes. Right. Which is, you know, caffeine is a is a drug that definitely changes kind of moods and, and the way you feel. And I'm sure he's probably indulged in caffeine a couple times. Right. But, yeah, this was this was a real love it or hate it. Um, I, I thought it was really fun. Yeah, I liked I it. I loved it. it. You know, again, I think this is the thing that this show is remembered for. The live report to The Observer, Dave wrote, 
that this segment was reported as good by some and excruciatingly boring by others. Even those those who loved mentioning the old names and Carino's mic work conceded that it killed the show for the majority of the fans. B. Gordon from his PW Insider Live report wrote, I was falling down laughing after this, as was my friend, who was attending his first Ring of Honor show. Some people, however, were tired by this and went to the lobby to watch the World Series. So I never got the impression that this killed the crowd. It certainly did did not seem that way on the tape. But, I mean, you do have a fan saying that, basically saying this was a love it or hate it thing, and some fans did not want this. But I mean, I get it, I guess, but I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was novel, I thought it was different, I thought it was good character work, and I thought it set the stage for an interesting vibe for the match. And finally, before we get to the match, Punk's uh, shoot interview, I, there was a, he talked about this, and he has said that Carino is a good friend of his, and so Punk came up with the idea that he would do a list mocking Carino. So um, Punk comes up to Carino and like tells him this, no, no. First, he says Creedo came up to him before the match and says, "I don't have a big entrance tonight." And Punk told him, "Like you need one because I have one tonight mocking you." And apparently, Creedo was like, "Well, what's your list about?" And Punk says, "I'm not going to tell you." And Creedo's reaction was to go, "Fine, I'm not going to tell you my list either." And Punk said, "I thought you didn't have a list." And then apparently, Creedo was like, "Well, I do have a list. I just didn't tell you." And then apparently, Creedo went out and wrote a list on the fly. Um, and before we get into the match, I'll ask your feelings on it. Did you notice the thing I noticed especially, and then was confirmed by uh, this Punk shooter interview? Apparently, Punk blew out his knee about like one minute into this match. Like you can see him grab his knee early. Punk said like he basically like hurt his knee bad right at the start of this match. I honestly didn't totally pick up on it. Um, you know, maybe I'm just I don't know. I don't. I, I it didn't. You know, I the match had a different sort of vibe than other matches would, but I, it didn't, it wasn't super obvious to me that there was an injury, no. Um, I will also just add, I don't totally believe that story about the lists. I think that they worked yeah. in coordination with each other. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, I, I, I could believe it. I don't know. I mean, that's Punk's story. Punk's story is, Karina wasn't going to do a list of this on this night, and then it happened to be the night that Punk had a list himself. Yeah, I don't believe it. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I also didn't pick up on this injury, so what do I know? <laughs> you know a few things. You, you've seen a few scars get put on babies, Matt. You've been around the block. I did like... Did you- yes, okay, that's true. Baby <laughs> scars. Um, no, do not, do not implicate me in this. I've never seen a baby be scarred by anything. I, I know of, I know that it happens, but I've never seen it. You know some injured babies. You just haven't been involved or present for the injury. Exactly, exactly right. Um, I did enjoy during the list that um, that Carino mentioned Guillotine Legrand and also mentioned Raven, Scotty the Body, and Johnny Polo. Yeah. The, uh, you know what's funny? It's like we always talk about the three faces of Foley. No one ever talks about the three faces of Raven. Well, there's also Scotty Flamingo. Exactly, yeah. And Scott Anthony. <laughs> so many Ravens. Faces. Yeah. Hmm. But what did you think about, like, for this match gets completely overshadowed in people's memories. Like, no one talks about this match. They just talk about the promo. So what did you think about the actual match? Considering that Punk was injured, and they also had to go 20 minutes, I thought it was pretty decent. Like, it was interesting. Like, it was slow-paced, um, it was, it, it was, had a strange vibe. Like the vibe here was like, you know, Carino was the wily veteran, right? 
and Punk was the young up and comer, which I thought was hilarious because Carino is thirty at this point. <laughs> um, but not only is Carino not that old, but like so, like for instance, like someone like a Finn Balor, he's he's thirty seven, right? He's treated almost like an up and comer still in WWE, right? Um, yeah. But also, he hasn't been in WWE that long. Like like the on the main roster, he's been there for what a little over two years. Um, is that is that right? Uh, I, I'm horrible with timeline stuff like that. I think he but. debuted right around, like, a little before SummerSlam 2016. Um, so, but, and so, like, he, he makes sense for him to be a young, a young up-and-comer. So, Carino is not that old here. He's 30. But also, he has not really been on the scene for that long, if you think about it. When did he debut in ECW? Like, 1999 on the on TV? <laughs> Well, even going back to that promo we talked about earlier, the Credo promo, he said five years ago we were in the WWF dojo trying to break it in there. That's only five years ago that he's basically talking about, like, the start of his career. Right. He was, like, not, like, yeah, so he debuted in ECW as, like, not nothing that important in 1999, so five years before this, right? Yeah. Um, so he is, so he's this wily veteran that no one had ever even heard of six no, actually, so 99 was four years before this. So no one had ever heard of him five years earlier, right? Like, almost no one mm-hmm. who watches the DVDs or, or in the audience had heard of him. And now he's this, like, grizzled veteran. That's ridiculous, right? Like, that's, that's just a ridiculous concept. I mean, part of it is that he... I mean, no offense to him, he aged a lot physically. Um, he did. From he when, got fat. I mean, I, I don't yeah. think he'd be mad because he makes numerous fat jokes during this match and segment. Like... He got overweight, and he didn't age great, and he got lots of scars on his forehead. Yeah, and, you know, probably a bunch of injuries, too, um, which probably contributed to some of that stuff also. Um, but, yeah, it's um, it's weird, um, but it is how they work the match. And basically, the thing was, this is two heels, who neither of whom are acting particularly, like, dastardly, but what yeah. they're just basically trying to do is out-schmuck each other, right? Like, they're just trying to yeah. be, they're just trying to be, like, more of a dick than the other. So, yeah, like... the craftiest jerk? Yeah, exactly. So, um... So, like, so like Punk is doing, like, low blows and sort of... I guess he's he's out, like, conniving him. Like, they, they, they both try to do, like, delayed vertical suplexes. Punk manages to hold Carino up for 20 seconds, which I was genuinely impressed by. And then, and then Gabe and Doug take the opportunity to mock Carino's weight and gut right there. Um, yeah, they, they say something like it's more impressive than the one Daniels did on Walters because Carino's so fat. Right. Like they basically that's what basically what they say. Yeah, I mean, I hate when they do that, but they do it. Um, then Carino does one, but he can only hold up Punk for eight seconds, and the crowd mocks him. And then Carino's like, "It's because Punk has a fat ass." And I was like, no, no, he does not. And even Doug is like, if Punk has a fat ass, he sure wears it well. <laughs> Which I thought was a, um, a very funny way to describe Um But other than that, um, you know, it's just it's like, by the end, they do start doing like, like throwing bombs and stuff like, um, like there's frog splashes and like lots of like double knockdowns and, um, so at one point, I guess Carino he gets smacked in the ear by Punk, and he they do this whole thing because it was this was the ear that Homicide injured. So the crowd, like the referee, stops the match. He's like, "Stay away from him! Stay away from him!" The young boy is going to check on him. This goes on for a couple minutes, and that's when Punk misses this frog splash, 
And then Carino gets up, like, right after, just jumps up all happy, and he goes, who's the fucking heel now? So the whole idea is that he was playing possum. Um... And so I, uh, I thought that was actually a pretty nice spot. Like considering that was the story of the match anyway, I, I think that kind of worked. Um, and then Carino hits like Northern Lights bomb for two. Punk gets hit by a lariat, but he kicks out at one and gets a Shining Wizard for two. Carino hits a super kick. Then Carino hits a backdrop driver, and the bell rings for the twenty-minute time limit. Did they make it clear at the beginning of this match had a twenty-minute time limit? I don't think they did, and it would have come off as weird. I, I, I bet you they probably didn't mention that because it would have given things away. Because how many Ring of Honor matches have a twenty-minute time limit? Yeah, I I agree like, with that. If I was that. there live and they said that, I'd instantly say, "What? Why did they mention that?" You know, like. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's like I don't know. Like I mean, I get why they did that, but it does seem weird that all of a sudden this match has a twenty-minute time limit. Like, they never really emphasize it. That's a normal thing in ROH. Do you think it's just because Zero One wouldn't let Carino lose here? Like, I assume that's why they went to a draw? I, I don't... Or do you think it's really for the storyline we'll talk about afterwards, where they kind of, like, have this mutual respect? But I, I don't know why they, they went to a 20-minute time limit draw. So, if I had to just kind of, like, theorize, I would say the genesis of it was zero one, but they could have done like a double DQ. And the reason they did this whole like out of the blue time limit thing is so they could do the post-match thing that they did where the guys basically were getting along. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and on like healing on the crowd. I think that's like, that's probably what happened. Like, I think if it wasn't for like that idea, they probably would have just done like a double DQ or something, which even though maybe it's not as satisfying, it makes more sense in terms of the context of ROH since they don't have a lot of these time limit things. Um, but I don't know. Like, I it's hard to say this was a good match in the traditional sense, but I think it was kind of good in a way for what it was. Like, it was interesting. Um, I, I think the portrayal of Carino is really interesting because in the first half of the year, like you said, he's now he's only played as kind of kind of a jerk. But in the first half of the year, he was really portrayed as this like chaos agent, right? Who was like when he's around, he uh, he brings so much tension, and there could be danger because of because of the riots and stuff, right? Yeah, and, and they were even doing angles like homicide, stab them in the eye with a fork, you know, things like much more violent, like life or death storylines. Yeah, and now, like I said, Karina's just like a schmuck, and. <laughs> That's and, a good way to put it. Yeah, and that's and like so they changed his character. I think actually this suits him much better. Um I, I think the vibe of the Carino stuff now is better than it was. Like I, I wasn't really like buying into the the danger aspect of him early on, even though obviously his matches with homicide do ratchet it up. I think it's fair to say he's an asshole that when he needs to defend himself because he's stepped in shit, he can he can defend himself violently. I think that's a good way to portray him. And obviously, he's gonna. The next time we see him, is probably gonna be a really violent match. But um, this was not that. And I thought that it was unique and kind of fun, and also a little boring at the same time. So that's kind of weird. But I still, I think overall, would give this a thumbs up. You know, that last line you said about the match might sound weird to some people, but I think that's a really accurate way of describing this match because I felt like in this 20-minute match, it was like there was highs and lows to me. It it was the opposite of the Walters-Daniels match to me, which was just kind of consistently middle, like, pleasing but not super great. I felt like 
the last bit where they tried to make it like a big bomb throwing match was pretty pretty darn fun. And I felt like any time they they did part of the match that was focused on them being two heels trying to outheal each other, I loved it. The problem is there are also other parts of this match which are just two guys wrestling kind of a slow 20-minute draw, and they're also not really known for being, like, the most smooth, coordinated wrestlers in the world. But, like, the parts that are great, like the heel-on-heel stuff, are great. But then there are parts of it where you're just like, I wish you, I, I, I wish they had made the entire match just all about heel versus heel. Because it was really fun, again, selling that point we keep making, it was not about, like, two guys trying to kill each other. It was about two heels basically trying to one-up each other and be like, who who knows the most heel stuff? Who's the bigger schmuck, as you would say? <laughs> Which, uh, like, um, there's a part at, at one point where, like, Punk asked, I mean, Kareem asked Punk to hit him in the face, and he keeps trying to tell him, like, hit me in the face. And Punk tries to kick him in the nuts because he's a heel, but Creel's an even bigger heel, so he has it scouted, and he stops it. And then Punk wants to run the ropes, but... Creo's like, just hit me, motherfucker. And then Punk finally goes for it, and then Creo immediately just ducks and takes him down. Like, it's it's like two guys, like, who can outwit the other? And Creo, generally in this match, was like the one who, being the veteran, knew more of the heel tricks. Like, he's not as good physically as Punk, he can't do the vertical suplex as long, as long but he does know more, like, more devious tricks of the trade. And that's his one, that's gonna keep him on Punk's level in this match. Um... There was one spot, speaking of them not being smooth, I don't know if you noticed this, where uh, Creo's in the sitting position and Punk does the typical kick to your opponent's back while they're in a sitting position, except it looked like he hit Creo high, like right in the shoulder and neck really hard. It looked like it sucked. Yeah. It was, I was, if I was Creo, I would not have been happy with that. I think uh, even the announcers mentioned that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it was a, it was like normally you hit a guy really hard in the back because you hit him in the middle of the back. It's one of those quote unquote hitting a guy hard in a safe place. But this looked like it moved to a unsafe place accidentally. Um, Doug Gentry did another bad commentary thing. He again, he, I think on this night maybe they had like a Freaky Friday moment, and Gabe and Doug just switched bodies because Doug at one point says. Uh, can you believe what would go through Punk's head if Carino wins? Or what Carino would think if Punk won? I can't wait to see who wins this match. <laughs> Again, like, in a weird way, telegraphing the draw. Like, because you would never say that for any other match. But this match where you're like, man, I can't wait to see who wins. And it's the one match that happens to be a draw. That's a good point. Yeah. Doug, would, Doug, Doug, Doug was very Gabe on this show. Yeah, Punk also steals, like we mentioned earlier, both Moffs throw the guy into the crowd and Daniels, um delayed vertical suplex so clearly punk not one of those crafty veterans watching the sh- every match on the show tonight he did not seem to know either of those things that occurred but they were good but again i love the heel versus heel stuff i would say this is a good match overall but it definitely has its highs and lows agreed um after the match post match oh and punk by the way said it was a match that like many of the these matches where he hated it when he did it but then when he watched it on tape he thought it was actually pretty good so that seems to be a theme of Punk at this point in his career, where he's his own biggest critic. But then when he watches the matches, he's like, that's not as bad as it felt like when I was working it. So after the match, the crowd boos at the draw announcement. They chant for five more minutes. Creno wants to go for five more minutes, and the bell rings to restart the match. Uh, Punk and Creno go nose to nose. Punk shakes Creno's hand, and then he bails to the outside. 
Credo goes on the mic. He tells Punk to get his ass back in the ring. And he asks the crowd, who wants five more minutes? Punk uh, talks to the cameraman, he, and he says, he, I wrestle for hours at a time. I can wrestle five more minutes. Punk starts to get back in the ring, and at that point, Creo keeps talking on the mic, and makes, then we get back into more of the insider stuff. Creo says, Gabe and, Rug, Gabe and Rob are cheap, and I don't get paid by the hour. But if I win, I get gas money for the ride home, which he says, by the way, is my ex-wife Sable. Not his ex-wife Sable. It's I believe he said his ex-wife's Sable, like the brand of the car. Like in that, like I'm so yeah, off, yeah. I drive my ex-wife's car. The make of the car, right? Isn't that a Mercury, a Mercury yeah, Sable? I, I, I heard on an honorable mention. I think they thought she he was referencing Sable the wrestler, but I believe it was just hard to hear over the mic. I think he was saying like I drive my ex-wife's Sable. Maybe it was a um, maybe it was a double entendre of some kind. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he rides Sable. Um, Carino riles up the crowd. He gets them to applaud super loud for the idea of five more minutes. Gets them to really want this. And then Carino says, I've been everywhere in wrestling. Done every drug and alcohol and woman. Maybe even punks. Carino says, one thing punk will never do, though, is outheal him. Steve says, punk is a younger Carino, just with a lot of tattoos and less fat. That gets a nice laugh from the crowd. Carino says he'll tell punk a little trade secret. You look the crowd in the eye and you say, screw you. Pay for it next time. Some people clap, some people boo, some people I would say stay silent. Uh, Punk and Creole start yelling at hecklers in the crowd. Punk asks one fan if they got a bowl of soup with their hat. Uh, Punk on the mic says that while he and Creole may not see eye to eye, they're on the same level because they're both better than the fans. Punk says they wake up every morning and they go to the gym, but he stops himself and looks at Carino and then goes, well, I go to the gym. That gets another laugh. Carino really getting roasted on all sides on the show about his weight, and he's not that fat. But um, anyway, Creo says he went to Jim's bar. Does that count? Carino starts, crowd starts saying, na, 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 goodbye, and uh, Punk and Carino do a sit-in in the ring. Creo drinks from his flask. Punk and Carino again get into it with some hecklers that we can't really hear, which rarely makes for good video. And then Punk ends the mic work with straight edge means I'm better than you. He drops the mic and tells Carino that's how you get the last laugh. Carino says he's proud of Punk and they both leave. I felt like there were some really good moments in this mic work, but again, it went on too long. And I felt like you could feel in this segment the crowd from being went from being in the palm of their hands to by the end of it like half of them had kind of checked out it was meandering like 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 they didn't they they didn't get to the point quickly enough they were sort of like goofing off a little bit and but like i you know i kind of liked the whole like the the way it worked out which is like you know like that they teased they were going to do it and then they were like well pay for it next time because we're heels but they just took a little bit too much of a uh a, a divergent path getting there, I guess. Um, so I think that's what happened. It's interesting. You know what I noticed about Punk in his promos here? Like, obviously, Punk always, you know, with the commentary and stuff, had kind of two sides to his heel personality, that being the schmucky jokester, but then also the maniacal cult leader. Yeah. And usually when he would do the crowd work, he was usually more the maniacal cult leader. And here he's just, like, totally like a harmless jerk-off. And it's interesting, like... I don't know how much of that was planned or just like Punk forgot that he was also supposed to be kind of a, a dark character. But like he's obviously not here. It's more like just like comedic heel here like Carino is. It's, it's just interesting the inconsistencies that you get sometimes with these characters. 
I wonder if the Carino stuff kind of brought that out of him because he yeah. definitely felt like he was playing on Carino's wavelength, like yes. you know the fat jokes and the and and that kind of stuff, and like the joke about oh, you know, I guess you, both of us don't go to the gym, stuff like that. Like I, I he probably just felt like I should play along with Steve because it's it's working. Like the crowd was laughing at every one of these jokes, right? Um, so I kept track of this, Matt. Between the pre-match, the match, and the post-match, this segment went something like 42 to 43 minutes, this entire thing. Well, it's by far so, the most memorable thing on the show, like, no it, no doubt about it. So, that, that, that it, it's interesting that, um, oh, another thing that I learned from, again, an honorable mention, I always gotta get the, the plug in, but I just, I did listen, they, they recently, in the last month, did a show about Empire State Showdown, and you sons of bitches, you got there first. <laughs> but, uh, it's my fault, I was too slow. No, no, seriously, I think, knowing what I have, we have for this show, and what, listening to what they did, they did a great job, and I think we both have information that doesn't overlap, and we have different opinions and different styles. If you really want to, I think it's worth it to listen to two different podcasts, give you like a combined five hours of coverage on a Ring of Honor B show. I think it works. <laughs> this, they this, is, this is an A-minus show, let's be clear. <laughs> Tradition continues, that was a B show. But one thing um, they did mention is... Uh, Again, maybe this goes to Punk lying again. I, I want to see if you believe this. Shane Hagedorn, who trained under CM Punk, and I'm talked to him. He claims that um, that Punk, uh, the whole pre-match mic work, that Gabe only allowed it when Punk convinced Gabe it was Gabe's idea. Like, uh, um, like Punk basically said, like Gabe was against it till till Punk kind of talked him into saying, like, this is really your idea, isn't it, Gabe? Hmm. I mean. I, well, I, don't, I, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about Gabe's style to know whether or not I believe that. I mean, I guess I believe it. Why not, right? But but, but they both fit in that mold. If you don't believe the other story, they both kind of fit in that mold of no one was going to do this segment except for Punk. You know, Gabe didn't want to do it. Carino wasn't going to do his usual list. Like if you, if you do want to doubt Punk, it all does kind of fit this narrative of like. Well, the, you have punk well to thank for this. What I'm doubting is that there was no coordination between their two lists that clearly complemented each other. Like yeah. that, I just, I just can't believe. Yeah, I, yeah, that is tough to chew on, and uh, I think something about this match might affect the next match because our semi-main event was a four-corner survival. John Walters defeat Col- defeats Colt Cabana, Jimmy Rave, and Just Incredible in seven minutes, fifteen seconds, when he made Credible submit to the Sharpshooter. So, a couple notes on this match: Teddy Hart was supposed to be in this match, and the Observer writes Teddy Hart missed the show. He was supposed to fly in from Florida after doing the MLW show, but it was canceled, and there was no point in him flying in on Thursday, as he was scheduled uh, as was scheduled, since he'd have to miss his grandfather's funeral because Stu Hart had recently passed away. So the decision was made not to bring him in since the cost would have been $1,500 and he'll be coming in November. As So John Walters took his place, winning a four-way over Just Incredible, Jimmy Raven, Colt Cabana, when Walters made Credible tap to the sharpshooter. Even though Walters had lost earlier in the show to Christopher Daniels, he is being given a strong push. So they make actually an announcement before the match that, you know, Teddy Hart can't be here and here's his replacement. And John Walters gets on the mic. He says it's nothing personal, but he said the next time he got in the ring, he'd be victorious and he can't wait till the next show. So why I think the last match affected this is usually, especially when they're in the semi-main event spot, Gabe likes to give these four ways like 15 to 20 minutes. Seven minutes is not very long at all for a four way. 
And so I bet you the last segment ran long since it ran well over 40 minutes. And as a result, I think this match, again, just very average. It was like a sped up forward. It wasn't like they did much different. It just was like they fast forwarded. There was a little bit of trading off at first. And then everyone went in for the final two or three minutes and did the usual. We all come in. We all do spots. Everyone breaks up pinfalls. I was a little surprised Credible lost to the sharpshooter, a submission no less. And I did feel like while Credible can kind of work a fairly brisk pace, his offense is a little basic for a match like this. It kind of stands out in Ring of Honor as a little too, like, I don't think as a wrestler in the ring, Credible has, like, a big hook. Like, I don't even know what's his selling point. As He's not a technician. He's not a high flyer. Is he really a brawler? Like, I don't even really know how you describe Justin Credible. But as a match, seven-minute four-way very forgettable and this is john walter's big win yeah i i would agree it's very forgettable um you know cabana really wasn't much of a factor here actually i think the person that stood out the most to me was jimmy rave um yeah, i think so yeah he looked very motivated very fast paced just very quick the very the early stuff with like him against walters like doing like the counter like with the counter wrestling i thought was very fast paced and good and I thought throughout the match, Rave was the guy who seemed to really be taking it here. I thought he um, he looks probably the best looked probably the best of anyone, which is I think a little bit surprising. I mean, we know Rave became a really good wrestler, but he hadn't really shown much at this point in ROH. Um, the, I guess the most memorable spots, like Credible's, like main thing he does in the ring that gets over is the five amigos like suplex thing that he yeah. does. And then Walters did a thing where, so he ties Cabana and Credible's legs together. Rave gets a cross face on Cabana, and then Walters like he he pulls back on um, on Credible's neck, like, and so it's like this weird like four person the whatchama do what doodad whatever it is do i love whatchama do that's my new favorite thing whatchama do scarred babies it's our new did you pay attention to the commentary during the whatchama do uh what did what did you pick up on this is my favorite moment on commentary of the night and completes the doug had an off night thing at one point when they're both when they're in the whatchama do gabe (laughs) says we might have a double tap and Doug follows it up by saying, we might have a triple or quadruple tap. <laughs> I, I'll know a triple tap would mean one of the guys applying a submission would have to tap out along with the other two. A quadruple <laughs> tap would mean all four men would tap out simultaneously. Everyone would lose. <laughs> Just what? <laughs> well, we have to go quiet for a second while I just laugh at that. Yeah, I can't believe I missed that. I'm mad at myself. That's really funny. A quadruple yeah, tap. This has been a very funny episode. I, um, I feel like that that move, um, plus the word do and quadruple tap, should all, all appear on our description for this show. I don't know what you have planned as the screenshot for, yeah. this, for this show. Um, I think the screenshot's just going to be a like self-satisfied like Carino with Bobby Cruz, but we should definitely work in do and Baby Scars, and okay. there's a lot to work in tonight. Well, um, I'll leave it up to you. Okay, so, and finally, what I'll leave up to you is talking giving the first impressions on our main event, a non-title, no-holds-barred match. Homicide, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, defeats Samoa Joe in 14 minutes when he, uh, I guess, makes Joe pass out in an STF that used a noose. Um, 
Homicide thought this match, in a shooter review, said he thought this match was great, like their first two Ring of Honor matches. He said before the match, he told Joe that they should both take it easy this night. But he said both of them did not end up taking it easy. And he says when it comes to the two of them, it's about pride, not money. This was, uh, I don't know how much you like this match, but I think it's safe to say, Matt, they did not take it easy on each other. No, they definitely did not take it easy. Um, but I also don't think it was great. Um, I thought they worked their asses off, and you know these two certainly have something special together. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it was the booking, but something didn't fully click with me. Um, so like they start off like even though it's a no holds barred match with like agility wrestling, basically like doing like like reversals and you know like run running back and forth and doing all sorts of stuff. But then they do, um, then they do like their slaps and stuff, and like they've had a few slap exchanges, like really hard slaps throughout the night. Homicide does a um, a thumb to the eye to break that up. Then they they do another loud slap exchange. Homicide takes control, beats him in the corner. Um, eventually, uh, Joe hits an STO in the tope to the floor. He only hits one ole ole kick, which uh, is not the norm here. And then Homicide. Gets Joe out to the floor, hits a tope cone helo, and then he does like almost like a running boot. Oh no, not not even running boot. He like gets an a Ole chair, chair shot. Yeah, a lay chair shot, like to yeah. the head. And the crowd loves a chair. And my favorite part about this was Gabe saying, "Normally a chair would be an immediate DQ in an ROH match, but we have watched a lot of ROH, and we know this is bullshit." <laughs> You should just say, unless it's a special K match, then eh, what are you going to do? And also lots of other matches where we just <laughs> don't want to, we didn't book a DQ, but the but the wrestler used the chair anyway. Um, yeah. Then uh, they talk about like, oh, it's really good the ref is letting this one go because we want to see a finish here. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the line usually. But this, you know, no DQ, so it's all okay. Um, Homicide hit a pile driver on Joe, which I thought was actually pretty good. Um, the table that Smokes introduced, unfortunately, had a broken leg right off the bat, so they couldn't do whatever they wanted to do with it. But Homicide propped it up in the corner. They did a bunch of like teases. Joe tried to do like a, a, quick, a snap power slam through it, but completely missed the table. So he just he just power bombed Homicide through it, and the crowd loved it. They are such suckers for tables because like this was clearly like just like a not the table spot they even wanted to do, but they still wanted had one of the few ROH chants of the night for this broken table. <laughs> Which, I don't know, I didn't think it was that great of a table spot. I don't know how you felt about it. Um, no, I mean, he, he missed it at first, the power slam. So, it, like, I, I always say this, not to interrupt you, but, like, one of my least favorite things I would want to take if I was a wrestler would be any spot where I'm supposed to go through a table after the table didn't break the first time. Because Joe power slams um, Homicide. It's supposed to go through the tail, but his power slam's so tight on the rotation, he doesn't hit break it, go through it, or even touch it, maybe. I don't know. And so you could tell Joe's pissed off, and he just fucking drops him with a power bomb through this table. It's like, I bet you that sucked. Yeah, it probably sucked. Also, Joe was like really like hitting his moves here. Like, he had a dra- just like really like high energy dragon suplex into a power bomb, into an STF. Uh, Homicide got the ropes, and now to say Joe doesn't have to break it. Although, I don't know. Like these rules seem like weird to me because in a lot of no DQ matches, like it's still normal to break a hold when you get to the ropes, and Joe broke it anyway to yell at Smokes. Um, Joe went for the top rope muscle buster, which he beat Todd with last time, but Homicide fought off. Joe jumped off, but Homicide hit an Ace Crusher, and then um, then hit a Lariat for two. Another back suplex, and by side it gets two. Uh, then Joe with the slaps and an insigiri. And, you know, all that stuff looks really good from Joe, the slaps and the insigiri. So this is when I kind of 
thought things got a little weird. So when Joe would do these like high impact moves and like the like the kicks to the back of the head and stuff, he would have the ref basically try to count him down for ten instead of pinning him. And I don't know, that took me out of the match a little bit because I'm like, why? Like, is first of all, it's never as someone who's watched pro wrestling for I don't know thirty years. Um, it's never been clear to me that that is part of the rules of a wrestling match that or that a referee just counts to 10 in a normal wrestling match when one guy is down. Like I've seen it happen before, but it seems very arbitrary to me because obviously guys are down a lot and you don't see the ref counting. So it only either happens when both guys are down or when one guy asks like Joe did here. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. It's just like, what are the rules when it comes to that? And if you, and if homicide is getting up at nine, then if you had just pinned him, wouldn't you have beaten him? <laughs> like, like that's the thing that, and he does, does it a couple times here. It's an island driver, and I think does this, and the same thing happens. And oh no, no he doesn't hit the island driver. Um, a homicide goes to the knees and and kicks him and kicks him in the face and gets the STF and like that. Get that gets a pretty big pop. But that's when homicide asks Julius smokes for the noose, and he basically just like chokes him out with a noose, like an actual noose, like a hangman's noose, and so. I get that Homicide is supposed to be like a crazy, deranged guy and just like is, just wants to win. He's intense. But I do not feel like this match got to that level of intensity to where a guy wants to strangle somebody to death. Like, when you've seen like Umaga versus John Cena, like that match had a level of hatred of int- and intensity where you're going to like choke a guy out with a weapon. This match, you know, it was a brawl, yes, but I don't think it got there and I don't think the finish really made sense to me. Um,. I also don't think that they treated it with the stakes that it would be treated with if somebody was really strangling somebody with a noose. Um, I don't know. I just I think the guys worked really hard, and they're both great wrestlers. I thought this was one of their lesser matches against each other, and I thought some of the booking choices, whether it was by the booker or by the wrestlers putting together the match, were weird and took me out of the match a little bit. I thought this was like low end, very good. I, I like this. This is their third match in Ring of Honor up to this point that we've covered on the podcast. I think it's better than their first match. Oh, definitely, uh, definitely better than it, their first match. Yeah. It's nowhere close to the do or die match. Yeah, uh, I mean, right. It, so it's in between. I thought they worked hard. I think you really hit on the main point I have for this match, which is it did not feel like they were really that into the stipulation like you a no holds barred match everything in it it felt like they did the bare minimum to justify it being called a no holds barred match like they did one big chair spot like the ole chair spot they did one table spot well they, well, they and, tried and, they, they tried to do one and then they ended up doing two yeah and then and then they did the uh the noose at the very end and everything else about this match just felt like any regular Samoa Joe homicide match you could have done yeah. without a, a no thing like and a str- strong strong style match yeah yeah and I think maybe Joe, one Joe I don't think I really want to see Joe in hardcore matches I don't think like Joe brings so much to the table I don't really want to see him like playing around with chairs and tables unless it's against Necro Butcher <laughs> yeah and the other thing is um oh uh, this was another match where I uh, there was another Ring of Honor match I forget which one but it felt like the only reason they did the no DQ stiff was so they could do the finish, which was a finish they couldn't do if it was not no DQ. Like, it didn't feel like they wanted to do a no DQ match, but they wanted to do the noose thing. And so it was like, well, this match has to be no DQ then. 
because because the rest of it really like the table and chair were not key bits of this match. Yeah, and, I agree with that. Although I still don't think the finish was necessarily that worth doing. <laughs> yeah, I guess the only thing it does is not only does it give Homicide a win, it kind of protects a Joe a bit apart from being the non the non title where you can say all right, could Homicide actually beat Joe in a regular rules match? Like, because he had to use a noose here, and he did beat the champ, but could he do it if it was just a regular STF? We don't know. Yeah, that's so. true. There's something about that finish, though, that I think messes up a storyline that they do months later the next time Joe and Homicide wrestle. But I guess I'll yeah. try to, I'll explain, I'll explain yeah. that for months from now. I, I think I get where you're going. And the other thing is the commentary uh, to like defend you on that spot not being great. The commentary also made it worse because I think Joe, you know, Gabe and Doug oversold it again where they were like, you know, it's going to kill. He's going to kill Homicide. And I think Doug said at one point Homicide's turning blue when we had a close up that Doug probably shot. And you could tell he wasn't turning blue. Right. And it was just, again, that typical, if something's already a 7 out of 10, they'll call it a 12 out of 10 yes. and kind of hurt it, actually, by doing that. And because it's not like it wasn't effective in some ways, but it's like they were selling like, oh, he's going to murder him. He's going to kill him right now. And um, but as a match, like there just wasn't a, it, it was they put in a really hard effort. It was fun action. It was just kind of missing that hook, like the hook of the first match had was it was the first time we had seen them wrestle in Ring of Honor. The hook the second match had was it was this ultra-dramatic world title match that the crowd really got into and had all the drama with low-key and smokes, and it just felt like epic. This match, it didn't really have a hook. It was just them going out and doing another match. And I guess people would say, oh, the hook's the no-DQ stuff, but again, I think we both agree that stuff didn't feel really necessary or like it really added a ton to the match. Right, and it wasn't for the title, which I think took away from the drama as well. And uh, there was some cool stuff I did love, like you mentioned, the uh, the Muscle Buster, because Joe was not doing the Muscle Buster other than that Homicide match. So the fact that he uh, tried to do it again here was like a very direct reference to people who had watched that first match, that last match. Like, hey, you know what this means if you've been watching every show. Right. It, and it wasn't just like, oh, I'm doing it because I try it every match, because he wasn't trying it every match at this point in his career. Um, there was also a crazy, uh, high angled German Joe did the homicide that looked nuts. Um, if there's one thing that this match will be memorable for in my, in my mind, I think this is the best performance we've ever seen from Julius Smokes. Yes. Julius Smokes is fucking nuts in this match. And I know sometimes he can be distracting here. He was perfect. It felt almost like this was a handicap match because J- Smokes was like a combination coach and the world's angriest ho- homicide fan. And going back to what we said near the start of the show, how people that are have the guts to interact with Smokes, it can make it so great because Smokes is such a strong character. Samoa Joe is one of the only wrestlers that has the guts to like get right in Smokes' face and like taunt him and like yell back at him and talk shit to smokes and it just makes smokes go even crazier well like one oh go on well i was gonna the one that i noticed well there were two main smokes things that i noticed but the first one was when homicide hit the the uh, tope con hilo i think it was a tope con hilo and that's when um smokes like just or maybe it was the running uh, chair shot and smokes just ran around the entire ring it it was after the tope i think he does a full 360 run around the ring. <laughs> yes. 
he's so excited and happy he run he like jogs around the entire <laughs> ring um, with his hands flailing like it's like he does and, and there's a point where like uh Joe has really got homicide down like homicides on the mat and just destroyed and Joe's taunting smokes I forget he says something to him or something and Hamas and, and smokes gets extra angry at homicide like get up get up and he says something like you Puerto Rican bastard or something to like Yikes. homicide like like he gets mad at homicide because it's almost like Joe's making me look bad you've got to like fight for my for my like pride and like, then and then when Joe is in the choke where he's like, we've been robbed of our names, robbed of our co-, like, just like, like giving this like big like philosophical screed it while Joe is being strangled thing. to death. Yeah, and that's a quote from Khalid Abdul Muhammad. That for people that have listened to the Public Enemy track "Night of the Living Baseheads," you might recommend it. Uh, you might recognize it. Yeah, he as Joe is going out around the news, he is screaming, "We was robbed of our name, robbed of our culture. It's not about the way we act. We've lost our minds." And he's just screaming this like this memorized speech and it's just the most scariest like <laughs> craziest moment and probably the best thing in the match yeah, yeah honestly honestly even though the they did work hard and there's nothing wrong with their work i think smokes was the best part of this match he outworked on this night homicide in samoa joe yeah and it's fair this was so, uh, so crazy but again Something missing from it. I, I agree. There's something missing from this match, but it wasn't Julius will, Smokes. He was not missing. No, <laughs> he was very present. And the last thing I will mention about this match is, I thought the booking in some ways of this match was really good, and I'll tell you why. Normally, when companies do non-title matches, I hate it because most companies they only do a non-title match when the champ's going to lose to set up a new challenger. So, you know, anytime a non-title match is a non-title match, it's like, oh, the champ's going to lose. What I like about this is they set it up in a way most wrestling companies wouldn't, and they did it in two ways. The first was Homicide's promo where he challenged Joe to this match a couple shows ago or wherever, whenever. Homicide said, like, look, I lost the last match clean because I screwed up. Like, I had my, I took my eye off the prize when I was about to, when I thought I might be able to win because I looked at, you know, Smokes and Key arguing on the outside, and then I lost. So he's saying, look, I don't care if it's for the title. I just want to prove to myself that I can beat you. And I thought that made a lot of sense. Like, in the storyline, the idea is basically like, look, I know I don't have the right to ask for a title shot when I lost clean, technically, but in a way, the whole that whole story of that match was maybe Homicide could have could have won if it wasn't for his friends arguing on the outside. So Homicide's literally just saying, "Please just give me a non-title match so I can know myself. Do I have what it takes to beat you?" Now, the other reason why I thought this was really smartly booked was they've actually had multiple non-title matches in Ring of Honor before this match where the champ won. I believe Xavier beat Jeremy Lopez in a non-title match in 2002. And we saw in a few shows ago at uh, Bitter Friends, Different Enemies, Joe faced CM Punk in a non-title match. You would probably think on paper Punk's going to win that to set up a title match. Joe won clean. And Samoa Joe against Prince Nana from the last show. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that that one slipped my mind, but no, you're absolutely right. But the point being, they've done it enough where it's not a, like, guarantee that a non-title match is the champion losing. So I thought that was a very smart bit of booking from Gabe. I, I thought that really worked out well. All, um, gr- all good points. And then we get to only a couple backstage bits to end the show instead of the usual like 
deluge of them. Uh, Special Cave is raving it up backstage with the tag belts. And Rob Feinstein shows up. He's not amused. Becky Bayless wants a hug from Rob. He rebuffs her. Rob is mad at Special K for not taking anything seriously, and he says they don't deserve the tag titles. Then Rob says next week, Dixie and Izzy will have to defend the titles against the Briscoes, and Dixie is not happy saying, quote, we're so dead. (laughs) Spoiler, they're dead. Um, And then we end the show with another way long ago pre-recorded Jim Cornette promo. Jim again hypes up that he's coming back to Ring of Honor with Samoa Joe to get revenge on the prophecy, and that there's money to be made. Jim says he's going to ring rule of honor and he's going to turn Joe from a legend into an icon. Is that even an upgrade? I wrote, I don't know. And also (laughs) the last thing he says is ring of honor. You've never seen anyone like Jim Cornette. And I was just thinking (laughs) to myself, what about Jim Cornette who has been in ring of honor before? Does he remember he's been here? (laughs) He might not. Did he think that was an Ohio Valley show? It was in Dayton. Yeah. He, (laughs) he's like, I mean, I guess maybe he wasn't like himself yet. I don't know. It's yeah. possible. But, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, same old shit with the Cornette stuff. Like, just, like, we've had the same criticisms. It just doesn't really yeah. fit. He clearly recorded that promo at the same time you recorded the last one. Yeah. What can you do? Yeah, ex- exactly. It's not It's not that he's bad. It's just doesn't quite feel like it's of a piece with the rest of the company. Um, Matt, before I ask you what you thought about the show i thought i'd give you a quote from gabe sapolsky about what he thought from about this show mm-hmm. and no it, it is from the same torch talk as the other as the quote we started the show with it is not as good a quote as that one oh. but it is worth mentioning gabe wrote our october 25th show that would be empire state showdown just came out on tape the empire state showdown and i watched it and there was a time i was a little burned out because we had three shows in three weeks and it was the first time ever like that I didn't really have a lot of good promos for that show, and I didn't have a backstage storyline throughout the show, and I watched the tape. I loved the in-ring stuff. I thought it was one of our most underrated shows in the ring, but I was very disappointed in the backstage stuff because I want to have it where if you're watching the first hour of our tape, you have a reason to watch the second hour of our tape, and that gives you a reason to watch the third hour of our tape, and you're watching an entire story unfold both in the ring and backstage. So I thought it was interesting. Gabe singled the show out as a show he felt like he did not do as much backstage like promo bits and interviews and storylines. But yet he also said he thought this was one of their most underrated shows in the ring. So how would you compare your thoughts to what Gabe himself thought about this show? All right. Well, it's interesting. So you mentioned that it was a B show earlier, and I said this was an A- minus show. And I do think that in some ways it was in the sense that, like, if you look at the Tradition Continues lineup, like, that was a B show, just in terms of, like, like the main event was Samojo versus Jay Briscoe, who had not really been built up to that level before, right? Um, whereas this was Joe versus Homicide, even though it's not for the title, like, clearly two of the main eventers. It also had a very novel segment between Punk and, um, and Carino, uh, things like that. So I feel like this is a little bit of a higher show in the pecking order than Tradition Continues. I do not think it had... The, the as high of a like top match quality as tradition continues with the Joe and Briscoe and AJ and uh, Styles matches, and I also thought the four corner match on that show was good, as you feel recall. But yeah. I do think that this this show is a lot more consistent in the ring than that one was. I'd say probably the worst match, in my opinion, was Xavier against Chris Sabin. Maybe the four corner match because it was so short. 
But neither of those matches were bad, and there were a few good matches on the show, and certainly some memorable ones. Um, so I thought this was this was a pretty solid show in the ring. I thought it was very entertaining from top to bottom. Um, I do I do sort of agree with him as far as like the booking. My issue was not so much that it didn't have good backstage stuff or like a through line because I don't think that's really necessary for me. But what I do notice is just in general the focus of the promotion is weak at this point. Like if if I were to ask you what is the main feud right now in ROH. There's no way you can answer me, right? Like, there's nothing, really. It's like they're, No. They're starting to build Joe and the Briscoes, which will become a main feud, but it's not there yet. Raven versus Punk still has another match to go, but it's clearly like that's just like a tacked-on thing to a feud that's yeah. already over. Because um, they didn't want to end it with that horrible kind right. of failure of a match that people shit on in Boston. Right, exactly. Same thing with uh, Homicide and Carino, like... They're not, they're not really putting a lot of focus on it, even though they do have another major match. You know, the, the next show they have is Main Event Spectacles, which I'm sure we'll talk about before we wrap. But that's, like, one of their biggest shows of the year. But there's also, like, no marquee matches on it, right? Like, there's no, like, big feuds being settled on that show. It's not like Death Before Dishonor, where you have Paul Lunyon getting his title shot and, the, like, the, one of the first big singles, like, gimmick punk versus raven matches or anything like that this is you know or like a third you know rubber match between the briscoes and styles and red nothing like that you know the big the big like selling match on that show is the return of somebody who hasn't been on there in months and then also um the scramble cage which is not really about any sort of issue it's just like here's a gimmick that we think is going to be exciting so clearly like they are, they have fallen off a lot in terms of their storylines you know you saw with that carino promo he cut a promo on like four different things like there's just like what's his focus and then after that match with carino and punk it's like well they're not feuding like they're clearly more friends than they are foes um so really this is a this is really a moment where they're like they have to get back to focus. The most focused feud they have right now is Xavier versus John Walters, which is like <laughs> that really is true. It is true. And it's like I mean that's that's a that's not even a mid-card feud at this point. That's a bottom of the card feud. Um maybe it'll become a mid-card feud, but it's not there yet. So I think that this show is a good entertaining show that exhibits a lot of problems, even if they're short-term, that ROH is going through at this point. I think, I think like, you kind of blew my mind, because that's a really great point you made about the feuds. Like, like another thing is, like, main event spectacles, the second biggest match is a four-corner survival match. It's on, on, I'm second biggest, I mean, in terms of its placement on the card. It's CM Punk versus Steve Crino versus Christopher Daniels versus Samoa Joe. Like, that's a lot of big names to just randomly throw together. And I feel like the problem with Ring of Honor around this moment here is, like, I feel like a lot of times in good feuds, you know what stage of the feud, what what stage the feud is in. You're like, oh, this is the early stage, this is the middle stage, or you're like, I know this match will end the feud. Where, like, if I was just watching it again, like, reliving this, not knowing where things are going to end up, I wouldn't know what stage the Homicide Steve Carino feud is in right now. I wouldn't know what stage the uh, punk Raven feud is in right now. I, um, like the, they started a tease for the Daniels punk feud, the, the second city saints versus a uh, prophecy feud a few shows ago. And now it kind of goes right back on the back burner for a while. And they, they're kind of doing that on this show with the Briscoes feud where it just feels like th- they do have good feuds. They're just not really pacing them consistently. 
Yeah. Like, like you said, the Xavier John Walter series is the only one where every show there's like a development. And yeah. it's just consistent, like, oh, it's 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 building. I can see where this goes and where this is going to end. And the Carino side feud, like, that's what you said about it, is true even in retrospect, in sort of, like, not knowing where they are. Because they, you know, like, it's sort of like that the match they have in a couple months is the blow-off. But then they come back to it a couple years later. Then they come back to it, like, another year after that. And it's just, like, it's something that they go to the well with. But when does it really end, you know? Like, it's kind of hard to answer. And I don't mind that. Like, I feel like it's cool to ha- occasionally have a feud like that. And I think even Carino has said that's like a feud we can always go back to. But the problem is there's a few feuds that feel like that. And I don't think intentionally. Like, a lot of Ring of feuds feel like that at this point in the company right now. Where they're just kind of floating. And it's like, well, can we get another match out of this? Or, oh, we don't need to do it tonight, this show, but we can do it the next show. And it's just, it doesn't feel like they're, they've been plotted out as well as they could have been. Like, beat by beat. Um, and, and, or, like here's the other thing we'll get into this more on the next show but low key versus homicide was supposed to be going on the next show main event spectacles and again there's another match where if they had had that match how weird would that have been in terms of pacing like for the feud right well it's like it would be fairly out of the blue I mean yeah, exactly. I guess I, I mean I don't know what they knew like at this point like the week out a week out we did had, had low key already dropped out of the match by then because um, clearly they did, I, I they did nothing on this show to they did nothing on this show to promote it. But even if they had promoted on this show, again, it wasn't like for the last five shows. It was like we, you and I watched where they were kind of teasing a way back around do or die that that you know there was this weird love triangle where Homicide loves Smokes and Key as his best bros, but Key and Smokes can't get along. But then they never really progressed beyond that point. And then there was that one promo we know like two or three shows ago where Homicide all of a sudden like calls out low key out of nowhere. Calls him a calls him a calls him a punk ass bitch and it's just like yeah. wow, I didn't know you had gotten to that point, guys. And, and again, it's like they're skipping between point A to point D and they're not showing us point B or C. It, it, it's like a weird it's a weird pacing. But I, I, I think it's clear they will figure out some of that stuff as we go forward. As far as the show, I thought I thought it was okay. Like, it, it's weird in the sense where there's no wrestling match on this. Sh- there's some fairly good wrestling matches on this show, but there's nothing I would say wrestling wise I would go out of my way to see. But yet, like the two biggest things I think that are worth it when it comes to the show are like the the Punk Creo promos and the uh, Julius Smokes performance. So, like the two biggest things I have to recommend on this show are things that aren't wrestling. Well, and but I would say the Punk Carino segment is worth watching altogether because it's just it, such yeah. a weird, interesting thing. Yeah, it works as a whole, like a 40-minute piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It does. The, the post-match, the pre-match, everything kind of works together. But it, it's just, it's so different, and because that's such a big part of why I'm, I, like, of what I liked about the show, I almost don't know how I feel about the show. Because yeah, it's such a different feeling show. Yeah, I can't tell if I thought it was better or worse than Tradition Continues, which I liked yeah. more. Which I liked more than you by a lot because of like the, the quality of the best matches. This one does not have anything close to those best matches, but it's interesting in its own way and probably more consistent. The wrestling is obviously much better on Tradition Continues, but I will remember Steve Carino and CM Punk more than anything on Tradition Continues. That's fair. So it, it depends what you want. If you want, do you want moments? Pick up this show. Do you want wrestling? You know, something more like Tradition Continues is more up your alley. 
and neither of these shows were bad. Like they, like yeah, no. it's still like this is like a you know a kind of a down period for Arrowhead in some ways, but they're still putting out good stuff. Like they, they like this is this good. You know, at, by normal standards, this is all good stuff. It's just not like up to the standards that they, we've seen from them. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the quality of Ring of Honor around this point, where even when they're kind of in a, like a refueling or like restructuring phase or whatever you want to call it, their lows are still very watchable, solid shows. Yeah, it'll be interesting to sort of look back on 2003 when we get to Final Battle and just like sum up the year, because it is quite an interesting year. <laughs> Definitely. And we're in the countdown because we only have five shows. We only have, this was the fifth last show, so we only have four shows left. So the countdown continues. If you guys want to contact us through the years at gmail.com is our email address, T H R O H, uh, at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF on Twitter. We post on the Pro Wrestling Only boards while we read posts. If you post on our threads in the plug section, Voices of Wrestling board, Figure Four board, etc. Next time, we will be covering a pretty darn big show, Ring of Honor Main Event Spectacles. That's right, only top-of-the-card eyeglasses on the next show. It has, there is, you know what's going to be a big show? When when I start looking at what we're going to have to cover, I get scared about, like, how we're going to fit it all in, because we have the entire crazy Teddy Hart saga. We have the saga of Low Key's first falling out with Ring of Honor. We have this, the Briscoe Brothers win their first ever tag team titles. We have the return of Brian Danielson after he missed most of the year facing AJ Styles. I mean, just a ton of stuff on the show. And it's going to be pretty darn exciting, I think. Yep, I'm looking forward to that one. I've been looking forward to that one for months. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to get through Made of Inspectacles quickly enough that we'll get this to you much sooner than this last show. Uh, um, no pressure. We do these shows when they come out, when they come out, and they're worth it. Gosh darn it. That's right. It's worth the wait for all of our scarred babies out there. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag scarred babies. Hashtag do. <laughs> hey, hashtag DV thrombozos. I'll take it. We'll take any hashtag, and we'll take any listens, and we thank you again. I thought this was a great episode. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, people listening, and good night.